0: So you can't rewrite, because to rewrite is to deceive and lie, and you betray your own thoughts. That's a
1: sin, Martin.
0: Guilt is the key, not sin. Guilt
1: re-not writing the best that I can. Guilt re-not considering everything from every possible angle. Well, how about guilt re-censoring your best
0: thoughts, your most honest, primitive, real thought? Is rewriting really censorship, Bill? Because I'm completely fucked if it is exterminate all rational thought that is the conclusion i have come to hi everybody welcome back to another episode of the infrequent podcast enters on asylum podcast uh your only recurring host and creator jake i'm joined by an old guest from a couple of episodes back Bretton campbell Uh, Bretton, good to have you back
1: thank you very much good to be back on the call so what are we talking about today well i know but the the audience might not
0: well, we're talking about a trilogy of films. Well, I call it a trilogy, a trilogy of influence, I guess you can say. Uh, yeah. The films beginning with uh, Italian art film legend Michelangelo Antonioni, his English thriller from the 60s, Blow Up. Internate inspired the movie Bratz, Francis Ford Coppola in the 70s with The Conversation, and then Brian De Palma in the early 80s with Blowouts. So. We're going to be discussing those three films, their similarities, how uh, each filmmaker makes their own unique thing from a similar source.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was very surprised by how unique um, they all were and how, like you were saying before the call, they all... They all they all, they all sort of cleanly focus on three totally different things, almost like they they fit in, 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 inside uh, three non-overlapping categories, which makes them so interesting to discuss in tandem. Uh, wh- which one should we start with? Do you want to go chronological, or do you want
0: to feel chronological could be the most fruitful and coherent uh, of order? So
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's fair. So. Um, yeah chronological we go Bl- uh, n- blow up from 1966
0: yeah this is directed by Michelangelo Antonioni uh, like I said an Italian art film legend Brendan, are you familiar with any other Antonioni works besides this one
1: um I mean no it like like I, I know of his influence and I know of his his major films I know of him as a person roughly, his his overall vibe. this is the only one I ever watched though this is the second time I watched it. and this was the only one I ever watched uh, that 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 shouldn't necessarily be a preview to my thoughts on this movie. the the fact that it was the only one I ever watched. it doesn't necessarily mean i I hate this movie or anything. I, I just I just never I never got really sucked in uh, enough to to move on to the rest of his filmography, you know. How about you? Uh,
0: besides this, the oh, I've seen the Alienation trilogy from the early '60s, which consists of uh, *Laventura*, Lenate, La and *Lecles*. I would so yeah, I've seen four of his films, including *Blow Up*. I would say *Blow Up* is my favorite out of the out of the four I've seen. Though I may not say it's the best out of the four. I can I would say uh, just on a pure enjoyment level, Antonioni's far from like my favorite director. He's quite. Solemn and austere with what he's doing, and very kind of abstracted in what he's doing. But I can see why, especially like in the later two films of the Alienation trilogy, uh, Lenote and Laclaise, Le even if I don't necessarily enjoy it as I'm watching, I can see how important and skillfully done what he's trying to accomplish in depicting like uh, the barrenness and ennui of like modern life and relationships and such.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, d- I definitely get get what you mean. It can be hard with these directors. Like, I, I, wasn't it uh, Orson Welles who said he he. he... Antonioni like wields boredom as a technique or something like that he really he said that as a sort of pejorative because he didn't like him oh he he says something about how he used boredom I think maybe I'm thinking of a different director he was talking about but yeah he's he is essentially I I mean this is how you got to respond to directors who are you know I know it sounds kind of immature but that are the sort of boring on purpose I guess sometimes they're not your favorite uh sort of viscerally but you get them
0: yeah, I think it was Paul Schrader who described some of those directors as wielding boredom as a technique in his transcendental style. I think Orson Welles like said Antonioni just lingers on things and follows people yeah. up roads. <laughs> that that was yeah. <laughs> I think uh, Ingmar Bergman actually also couldn't stand Antonioni except for two films, uh, L'Avventura and Blow Up, which ironically I would say are the two best
1: of <laughs> the films I've oh, seen. Oh, there you go he has good taste i suppose yeah it's it has this really drowsy style like it's it's obviously not tarkovsky or something we're not sitting here for three hours with this movie <laughs> but there's something like really kind of yeah kind of um sp- spiritually deadened and kind of um you know lazy about the whole thing obviously on purpose i'm not saying it's some sort of oversight on his part but but it, it can be strange in the segments i find that um don't don't directly deal th- with the thematics of the work kind of thing you know like um I just find there's some there's some parts of this movie that that are sort of so plot focused like the thriller stuff and there's there's other parts that kind of sacrifice that stuff completely in service of pure theme kind of thing it, it particularly the end uh, where, where it can be kind of i don't know it it, it can feel kind of disjointed to, uh to me i suppose or, or, or just kind of odd. It doesn't go down as smoothly as you know I thought it would. Uh, maybe that sounds a little vague, but I don't know. It, it, it's just this strange kind of um fusion of, of raw plot elements and these more kind of a uh, pure thematic elements like the later stuff.
0: In general, it, this has more of a plot mystery element than like you know the alienation trilogy, which is very much just focused on bored dilettantes living meaningless unromantic lives whereas uh this one though it starts off kind of in a somewhat aimless floating way of just this photographer in his in his daily routines i guess or just whatever activities he has and then later it, it introduces this potential murder mystery thriller plot but then it kind of becomes like an anti version of those tropes and then kind of makes a like an almost post pre post modern, like meta commentary on like film and photography at the, at the very end of the film that you wouldn't really see coming just from like how it starts out, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And, and it can take a lot of diversions building up to that thesis in a way that I, I think w- when I was watching it again this time, I felt a little, it felt made it a little. Bl- Uh, bloated i would say maybe bloated is a weird word for a movie like this but you know the part where he goes to see the yard birds can seem like a a sort of weird tangent unless you're taking it as pure theme or the parts where he's just lounging around with the other two model girls in the middle it feels like an extension of ideas we've already seen but once you get the full picture i think it kind of coalesces a lot better and you see what he's trying to do
0: it's a strange thing because it does have like some techniques to, that you would see in maybe a more spiritually minded director like Andre Tarkovsky, just with like the long takes of kind of nothing happening. But with I kind of view Antonioni somewhat similar to Igmar Bergman in the sense that both of them are interested in like the alienation of like modern life when they're making their films, but. The difference is like Bergman is like so kind of up close and personal with like the characters in his films. Like he uses a lot of close ups. He likes to use like dreams and so on. Whereas Antonioni is just so like far away. It's like almost like it's like what people sometimes say about Kubrick, how it's like somebody just looking at ants (laughs) at times. That's that's kind of how I feel about Antonioni, (laughs) even arguably even more so in some ways than Kubrick.
1: No, I, I, that's a that's a good point. I didn't really think of that comparison, and I and I think you're you're onto something in that he's the embodiment of the kind of straw man people use for Kubrick. I'm not as crazy about Kubrick as other people, but I certainly don't think he's as cold as people say all the time. This, yeah, he's more interested in in the London that this guy is trapped in than he is in the actual, you know characters that are being trapped. So, so many wide shots of, of, you know, dreary parks in these kind of gray avenues, cobblestone streets. It's kind of nice in a in a way. It's, it's kind of aesthetically pleasing in a way, while being dreary at the same time existentially.
0: Yeah, which is kind of a trait of all his films, just showing this, like, modernist architectures, but in, like, and these like vast emptiness at the same time though at the same time in this film it's like he also populates that with mods and like and mimes throughout this movie this is such a 60s <laughs> <It's>...
1: movie <laughs> i know it's certainly a striking aesthetic the soundtrack i had totally forgot about which yeah. certainly sticks it yeah
0: hell yeah herbie um, hancock uh... it, it,
1: it's you got you got herbie hancock and the yardbirds in there it, it, it it's almost like so 60s that it seems like a parody of the 60s and the way that lost boys almost seems like it couldn't have been made in the 80s because it's so 80s it seems like a pastiche like this seems like (laughs) fucking austin powers or something like that sometimes yeah i don't
0: know yeah but i think with that we can maybe just go through the film proper as uh, we start on the grass field which we end on so Got to get that, you know, George Lucasian. Uh, it's like poetry, sort of. It rhymes, right? Oh, uh, true, true, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, it signifies the canvas of which uh, this movie will be painted on. I, yeah. I don't mean that. I don't mean that facetiously, even though that tone sound, <laughs> sounded sounded. Like that.
1: Uh, but... I totally get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: then, like we said, we get those mimes that are just like driving around in their trucks, doing their thing around these modernists. Uh, Architecture. I'm trying to think. I, I don't know if this is a facile point, but it's like. These buildings are just so vast and empty, just like mimes actions are. They're not like doing anything of value. They're just (laughs) imitating things. I don't know if there's like a weird correlation that he's trying to make between that and the mimes.
1: I I think so. Like, especially considering the ending, I was thinking about that, that the mimes seem like the distillation of all the kind of kind of uh, I guess what Antonioni views is like the meaningless actions that all these characters are, are are carrying out throughout the film, like the, the rock concert, the photography, you know, the sort of sex or whatever, the the drugs and whatnot. Um, he, he essentially seems to be saying that these sort of endless rituals of consumption are, are just this overlay over the the, the, the sort of reality of, of, of human life kind of thing represented by the gunmen. But, and I think, yeah, the, the the mime is a perfect demonstration of that because they're literally doing nothing, right? Like, they're sort of demonstrably surface level doing nothing because they're, they're not, they're, what they're doing is invisible.
0: Yeah, it's also interesting how, like, this movie is set within the backdrop of the mod subculture because, you know, the mod subculture as it began, it's like mo- they were, like, listening to, like, modernist jazz type music. And then, like, the trends tended towards, like pop art and psychedelia as it went on. And it's kind of interesting that like the the photographer in the film played by David Hemmings. I don't think people say his name is Thomas, but he's like never actually named in the movie. I don't even think he's named in the credits to, to be honest.
1: Interesting.
0: So I'll just call him either David Hemmings or the photographer, but uh you know, he starts off kind of like, you know, trying to photograph the dos houses and stuff in this, you know, artistically serious vein, but then his own photography takes a trend towards like the pop art psychedelia with the the models he's uh photographing and the stagey ways that he is so it's kind of the mod culture subculture is like linked to the actual character and his story in a sense
1: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah i guess he's saying it's like the collapse of high and low culture kind of thing right uh, it, or or sort of the flattening of everything. Like every object of consumption is an object of consumption, no matter what it is. Like uh, the, in a part which I thought was perhaps a little bit on the nose. There's, there's I think a part a little bit later. Uh, sorry for jumping ahead. Uh, that that he like hands a guy images. Isn't it like Holocaust images or something like that? Did I? Did no. The, he's like meeting his friend. It's like what what is that? It's it's very kind of dark uh, no, black it's... and white photography.
0: It's photographs he took, because we see him... The first time we see him, he walks out of that, like, Doss House place. And we at first, he seems indistinguishable from the other people there, because it doesn't immediately focus on him. But then we learned he just infiltrated it to take the photographs. So I think that that imagery is from those Doss Houses in ah. England at the time, of all the poverty and stuff. But I think it's fine to jump around with this kind of movie, because it is more theme, atmosphere-driven. Sure. But, but uh, I I get what you mean, where it's like... you say it's on the nose, but, like, I think there is something kind of correlation between how he maybe thinks that his photography later uncovered a a murder plot was because, you know, he says, like, he's making jokes about how he wants to be free and stuff. He wants to be free of his vapid models who he refers to as bitches, right, in a very cold way. But then, you know, his friend says, like, oh, free like him. And it's, like, a poor kind of disfigured guy in the photograph. I think there's an idea of, like, because... The photographs are pretty good photographs like i don't know where they originate from who took them but they're they're pretty good photographs but like they're not really like helping anybody right they're just like documenting things so it's almost like he wants like his art his photographs to have an impact on the world so so if his thing uh caused a you know uncovered a murder plot oh he's uncovering something real in the real world that his art is actually uncovering right so maybe mm-hmm. if we want to take the, I think it's pretty clear that the murder plot, he kind of manifested in his own mind. Like, I don't think it actually really happens. So it's like mm-hmm. his own inner, de, inner desire manifesting to have his art that actually makes a difference in the world or with people.
1: I think that's a good take. Yeah. I, I guess I, I, I think you're, you're probably uh, on a better track than I am. I, I guess I sort of just took it a, the, the murder real or not is more just of a metaphor for sort of his thoughts of his mortality or something or or the, the sort of the, you know the, the 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 inevitable kind of decomposition of all these these consumpt- these objects of consumption he he sort of runs through all the time right uh, but but I think I, I think that's also a good point that I didn't consider that um you know it's it, it's it's also it, well he finds that kind of. You know, frightening and repulsive. The idea he's also somewhat attracted to the idea of this being an actual sort of his life having an actual plot, I guess, to be blunt, right? There, yeah, there isn't just total aimlessness.
0: Yeah, well, that kind of links to the uh, the art his artist friend who's like an abstract expressionist, right? Who we see a few times. When he goes to see him the first time and he just has like, you know, a Jackson Pollock type action painting ready and he says like he doesn't that he doesn't know the meaning of it. It just fills itself in later. It's the same thing with the the photographs he takes of the couple in the in the park. He doesn't like he's just photographing them. He doesn't really have any intent besides that. And then but, you know, as he gradually develops them, then the, the murder plot or the potential for it develops as. He himself develops his own photographs. So I think it's more of linked to how he views his art necessarily than than like his own mortality. But that's just the way I, I saw it, just because yeah. of how just because yeah. of how how the movie kind of surrounds itself in this in the art world, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. It it is very uh it, it is it is very concerned with those other sort of subsidiary themes for sure.
0: I kinda of wonder is like the place he's in just like a Warhol like factory? type thing because we see another painter in there who's like painting her own things at like when he walks in kind of seems like a factory mm. type place even with the models yeah. you
1: know, kinda, i don't know if
0: it is or not but it might be influenced by that scene
1: yeah i could definitely see i could definitely see that I, w- I wonder what antonioni thought of that art in on a genuine level i'd be interested to know i mean it seems like he's taking the piss out of everybody in this movie but who knows
0: it's also weird how uh, like uh the various types of photographs the f- uh, david hemmings takes in the film like where well, the first one we see him taking is of that that model and it's it's kind of like really obvious that there's like a sexual component to it and he's just like come on come on work 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 and like you do your body this and this and then you know he pat he like goes to sit on the couch all out of breath like it's it's pretty on the nose that <laughs> he's getting a sexual <laughs> thrill out of this almost in a way i'm like wondering is antonio putting something so obvious like that and in- that in there to like mislead people, <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I couldn't tell either. It's certainly a funny scene. Maybe it's just maybe it's kind of just, he's just hammering it so hard for purely for the jokes. There, there is a lot of funny scenes in this movie. It's not, it's not all downbeat, I suppose. So maybe it's just supposed to be a, a gag. I'm not entirely sure.
0: They all they satisfy these like needs in him. Like at first, the first one we see of like the the photos he took at the Doss house, That's like his artistic vision of that kind of thing but then with this it's like a sexual thrill and then with the other models it's just like vapid meaningless commercial photography uh-huh. that 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 he doesn't yeah. really get any thrill of well i guess he does have sex with two of those models later but it's not out of photography he it's actually like he gets a sexual thrill out of having discovered that his he may have uncovered the plot with his f- photographs and then he's like giddily sexual with the two girls so
1: mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah that that's the only thing that actually kind of drives in the entire movie the the rest of the time he just seems sort of low-level pissed off by everything in his life seems to want to separate from people in some sort of way and like he ta- he talks at one point about having a white a wife who's not actually his wife who is he doesn't think is good looking but is good to deal with but is also not nice to deal with or whatever so he 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 just sort of seems to like the abstractive idea of of human connection more than the real thing.
0: Yeah, it's sort of weird because when he's saying that stuff, it, he just keeps contradicting himself. It's kind of just comes clear he's bullshitting stuff. I almost wonder if like as, especially with the final image of like with the last we see of him, I wonder if it's like a foreshadowing of the meta nature that he's just this. He himself is just this made-up figure that the movie very much exposes in the last scene. I wonder if that's like a preamble to that meta mm. uh, explosion at the end.
1: Maybe uh, I, I I I'd like to look for more of that because I don't know the la- the last chunk of the movie. I think it, it could almost benefit from uh, from having more sort of sort of tonal uh, or formal ties to the to the to pre- the preceding parts. In my opinion. Uh, but so i would i would be interested to know if there's more of that that sort of stuff seated in the earlier parts of the movie
0: yeah and there's also like a, a thing in like photography or in the theories of photography and video and such like does photography kill people like in a metaphorical sense like it kills the subject it freezes them in a certain time and i wonder if like maybe he's i imagine he's probably aware of these ideas considering he was like you know an intellectual filmmaker so Mm-hmm. I kind of have the th- feeling maybe he is sort of uh, putting that in a way because, you know, he's like the photographer says, like, what's the use of a name and things like that? He doesn't like things being so pinned down to something, which photography is like the embodiment of in a certain sense. So that's why he wants his his photographs to be more than just still captures of things.
1: Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. he, he There's just. I, I guess that, that's sort of the benefit of the character being so um, so much. Like you said before we started talking, not quite a cipher, but you know, Antonio he started holding his cards close to his chest in regards to this character a lot of the time. Yeah, you can sort of see these these hints at these deep desires this character might have but but you know the the both the actor and the and the script are really holding that close to uh, their chest so it sort of invites interpretation in all these sorts of ways I'm, I'm really not entirely sure the the film i don't know it chooses to remain sort of enigmatic in that way
0: yeah i think it's enigmatic in a good way generally speaking because i don't think you can just imbue every mm-hmm. little thing into the film i think the movie gives you enough of what the general mm-hmm. Milo and ideas are so you can imbue these things. So I don't, I don't, there is a vagueness to it, but it's not like a lazy kind of vagueness, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think this film is lazy at all. I, I, I just think he's sort of um, following his muse in a way. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, that, that can sometimes result in, in, uh, in threads that run all sorts of ways. Not always tying up in the cleanest ways, but you know, it pre- it presents a full picture of I, I think um, what he thinks of these characters in the in the environment in which they inhabit. That that's sufficient for uh, for all sorts of interpretations.
0: I would say Antonioni, like his movies, aren't necessarily like character studies, even if like there's an intimacy to them. Like it's more like a general vision he has of like the modern world that he's trying to depict is the appealing thing. In a way, it's but. There's always that thing like, well, if a characters are just ideas or part of a vision, can it just ring really flat and stuff? And I think we discussed that with the addiction a few months back.
1: Oh, just, right. Yeah, yeah.
0: But I feel like there's a difference is that like the addiction is just so blatantly obvious that like these people aren't actual people. They're just there to spout this philosophical dialogue that isn't even theirs. Half the time it's just quotes – Whereas in, like, this, Antonioni's other good films, and even, like, say, Terrence Malick's best films, yeah, you can say they're not character studies, but they texture the characters enough to where that you can tell they have some kind of traits and desires, but we they're held back enough so we can still see them as, like, just representations of the themes and ideas that they're working with.
1: hmm Yeah, yeah. There's a width of scope in this movie that... That makes it more than just a series of quotes or whatever like the addiction is that that's really harsh to the addiction i shouldn't i shouldn't be that harsh i mean it's not that bad it's not as bad as halloween 2 directed by rob zombie i would say
0: Uh, Uh, i i actually like halloween 2 better oh true we did say
1: that why would i why did i say halloween 2 halloween 1 directed by rob zombie halloween 2 is actually better yeah
0: yeah the first Um, rob zombie is a piece of shit but (laughs) <laughs> we're we're done with those movies, thank God. Uh, yeah,
1: this is this is like an impressionistic paint in a, of an entire of a, of a sort of ecosystem, a specific ecosystem, a specific time and place. It's not just uh, the ideas of a few philosophers or whatnot, right? It's wider than that, if that makes sense.
0: I guess what do you what do you think of David Hemmings as the the photographer, like just a performance? Do you think there's anything really to comment on?
1: I don't think he's doing a ton, but I don't think he has to. I think like the point is that he's not doing a ton. Like he's playing yeah, he's playing a smarmy asshole in most situations. I I suppose you could say the points in in which that mask kinda slips, he plays pretty well. Like there you can sort of see this kind of vague panic on his face that he wears quite well at certain points. But most of the time he's meant to to keep up, just um, sort of keep on a mask, and I think he, he wears the mask very well.
0: Yeah, it's not like a performance that like you're gonna ride home about. If you're gonna ride home about the film, it's just gonna be the overall film. But yeah, like I said, he plays the smarmy dick kind of convincingly and when he's doing that and even like towards the end where that like you said that mask is slipping he there's enough there like with his expressions and stuff that he is able to humanize them beyond just being like a mask for these kind of ideas so it's not like a great all-time performance but he he does what he needs to do
1: so to speak exactly yeah this is just the kind of movie where the these actors are just sort of uh, it's sort of props for the director's ideas, which I guess is okay in this in this situation.
0: It's fine if you're doing it well. Unlike, uh, sure. unlike that vampire movie, which we are not inviting into our homes again. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, not again. We're not doing a Redux ever again. That's not happening. Sorry. Uh, uh,
0: yeah. What I find somewhat interesting about this character is that, like, he's. He clearly has a disdain for like the pop art photography that he has to do, just like the way he treats these women and such. How he calls them bitches, and he just like molding them to these eyes and making fun of the way they're they have to like starve themselves and look the way they do. You know, he's like when he's like shut your eyes until I come back, right? With all these sarcastic remarks, but yet he at the same time does treat them kind of like superficially. He does have this superficial attraction to like the form. <laughs> of women Mm -hmm. right throughout the film so it's a weird kind of contradiction i'm not saying that's like a broader theme but that's just a texturing that he has that's a little interesting
1: yeah i I found that too it's it's interesting how he treats these specific women i guess the only real characters especially the one he takes the film from uh that the role of film or he takes the film of and keeps from
0: yeah which we can get into yeah the main plot comes when he photographs this couple in a park and you know, he treats the the woman who's played by Vanessa Redgrave in kind of a shitty fashion, like kind of making her bag like a dog and stuff to him. But we don't really know the entire relationship to this woman has to this man or or why she wants the photographs back. It's kind of like, is it just like a general invasion of her privacy that she's concerned with? Or is it just like this man somebody she shouldn't be seeing like an affair or something i i think it's fine that the movie doesn't answer it because ultimately it's not the point is to give us that but it it gives us that character in general is just strange like when she goes to get the photos and then she's like stripping naked for him she's doing all these things it seems like such a big deal but yet we don't even know and then he's making up all these stories like is this woman even real yeah i know
1: that's what i was thinking and I, i'd almost think it'd be a better character if she wasn't i think a lot of that stuff with her is is maybe my least favorite part of the film just because it's it's sort of a lot of it is a rearticulation of stuff we've seen and then there's the stuff yeah like her stripping or whatever that just it doesn't make sense it only seems like it happens because it has to happen like i don't see how it, it it's part of a continuous uh so it's sort of a i don't see how it's in conversation with the rest of the movie kind of thing
0: i sometimes wonder maybe if it's like this you know his life does seem to follow this kind of bland formula of like okay i'm gonna go take these pictures now and this and that i'm just gonna go do this i'm gonna buy this uh propeller from this antique store for some for some reason and but then with this woman, who's he—he kind of has to slither around. I think even in that scene, he says like nothing like a little disaster to sort things out. So it's like maybe this woman is giving him a bit of a throwing him a curveball with these kind of things, and that excites him in a sense. Mm. Maybe that—maybe that's the idea. But and that's more of a theme that's prevalent in like his more just stripped down realistic dramas, like Lenote and things like that. Like the Monica Vitti character in Lenote very much performs that function for the main characters, but in this film, that's not the main focus, but he still puts it in there just as a part of their realities, or maybe maybe they aren't even part of the, this reality. Maybe maybe she is just a figment of his bored imagination.
1: Maybe, and maybe, yeah, maybe she's just sort of, you know, a you know, reflection of him also looking to purposely kind of sabotage her life as, as a sort of rush or whatever. I don't know i i i don't know what that character a puzzling character
0: yeah it's not it's not like bad but it is just sort of a puzzling aspect of the film that is not i i would agree with you is not the most resonant part intellectually or emotionally i would say <laughs> after she comes trying to get the photos and doesn't work he slithers around her he basically uh uh, this is when he looks at his photographs and he discovers the, the murder or the gunman hiding in, you know, in the bushes. Right. And then he calls his friend saying, it's great. I've, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've saved a man's life, but, but then even later, it becomes even more elaborate when he, this person might've already actually been dead who the gunman was trying to kill.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah um, and, and his friend of course doesn't believe him in the style of, or seems seems incredulous sort of thing in the style of, of all of these movies, I suppose. Um, it, it, uh, we also get the scenes... Uh, the, we, we also get a little bit... The, this is, I guess, the most thriller-y stuff, st- thriller-y stuff. We get a little bit of the type of scenes that are in all three of these movies, which are like the process scenes, right? Of them doing whatever they need to do uh, with whatever equipment they happen to be using to yeah. uncover these um these things not not my favorite part of these movies I, I know a lot of people like sort of the process stuff in movies about these sorts of people these sorts of characters but, but it's just not my favorite i suppose not my favorite aspect
0: it's one of those things i think people who are like we love pure cinema love that stuff because it's all just done through the audio and the visuals right but i agree like what they're well constructed and out of the three i would probably say that Blow Up feels the most purely constructed out of the three, though the conversation and Blow Up do do it well with the way they're, do, uh, you know, the murder scenes and the, the potential for the murders in their films. But, yeah, I'm not one of these people who believes in, like, pure cinema, so to speak. Like, I think cinema is very much like a conglomerate art form that has a lot of different moving parts. It can, you can't really boil it down to one specific thing. Mm hmm. I, I'm not against like pure visuals in film. Like, there's a lot of great films that do that, but like, I'm not like an idealist, so to speak, when it comes to that line of thinking about films.
1: Yeah, I get what you mean. I get what
0: you mean. Unlike the director of the third film we're <laughs> we're talking about, but anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll get there. But it does. Some of these things do raise interesting questions, like you know, like how much is Hemmings, you know, the photographer imbuing into his own photo is. Can art ever really capture truth, like the man with the gun, or is it just a delusion, so to speak? What is art's relationship to truth? I think that's kind of that's a theme that the film has. Or it's interesting because it kind of this movie came out the same year as Persona, right, by Bergman, and Persona very much has an idea of like art in a very meta outward sense as art as a means to truth is just a pretension that artists have. It's always a form of artifice. And I feel like in a smaller way, Blow Up kind of has that theme with uh, him trying to think that his photog- his photographs reveal some kind of truth, even though it's just art, right? In a Kantian sense, like art is just, it's artifice. It can't, it has, it doesn't have a relation to truth. It can translate aspects of the real world and stuff, but it can't truly change or, reveal new truths about things Mm
1: -hmm. yeah it certainly can't uh, you know it's not a path for self-actualization for this specific guy certainly so i mean if we're looking at at it it sort of strictly through the lens of this character and his his quote-unquote arc it definitely seems like a, a companion piece in that sense
0: people have also linked uh the film's uses of photographs uncovering uh truths about an event uh and reality to the Kennedy assassination, like the Zapruder film, which I would say blow out uh, more heavily links to like the Zapruder film. But I guess it does have the idea of like, can a photograph or video still deceive, or you know, because like people, like what was it, Godard saying, like, cinema is like truth twenty four times per second or something. And which I feel is a load of shit <laughs> from from yeah. Godard. Yeah. So and I feel like yeah, like photographs and things we think record reality still have the the ability to deceive people and people can still refuse to believe them right
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i I would definitely agree unless you're heckin herzog you're talking about that ecstatic truth well we're not herzog
0: that's not the that's not really the same thing if her yeah the ecstatic truth is actually closer (laughs) in line with what these movies offer unlike uh Unlike Ray Carney, right? You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The surface that, of reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's only uh, only pra- uh, was the uh, pragmatic artists like John Cassavetes? They're the only artists that that matter. <laughs> While at the same time, he praises people like Tarkovsky and Bergman, <laughs> who are also deep diving visionaries. So. Hell yeah! But I, uh, gotta throw that that bow tie hack Ray Carney some shade, you know?
1: Oh uh, yeah, we gotta get we gotta get about the podcast to settle the beef. I hash it out.
0: Yeah, well, he he denied to engage with Alex sheremet over his Woody Allen uh, uh, takedown, but so I doubt he'll uh, he'll engage with us over some little jabs at him, right?
1: Probably not. Probably not.
0: But anyway, yeah, back to blow up. Uh, yeah, he goes back to the park and he sees the dead body. But and I like how uh, you can almost laugh at it first because the body's obviously a mannequin. It's like so such an obvious, not even a real person playing that dead body. But it works because it shows that like the artificial nature of this plot and the photographer's own loose grip on reality as he's slipping. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's perfectly fine. You're, you're right. It totally is a mannequin, but it, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it anything close to, to belief shattering, you know, didn't shatter my suspension of, of belief. But then it's like you
0: wonder who stole the photos when he returns back, right? Because the photos are all gone, except for the blurry one that showed the body,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's the sort of thing where it sort of hints at an actual thriller plot, but so, sort of discards it. It's it's part of this the weird the weird tape rope. Uh, this, this movie sort of sometimes walks between a, a plot-focused thriller and a more abstract thing. I don't know. I, I guess you could say that's the part of the film where like that's one of the major signposts of the movie where it sort of um it sort of uh delves into abstraction kind of thing. It's just sort of rationality is thrown out the window. I don't know, it's such an underplayed beat though that it almost seems like part of a real plot like it still leaves you wondering who actually did it, like if it was an actual person who did it. I'm just not entirely sure.
0: Is it was it like, you know, the woman who wanted the photos back was it the actual killer, like the gunman, was it a associate or maybe was it the was it the photographer himself to to convince himself of his own conspiracy yeah i really don't know and the movie doesn't answer that so
1: no it doesn't seem interested in that
0: yeah maybe it was maybe as a meta commentary it was antonioni as the filmmaker just removed them from the film you never know Mm. right yeah exactly. when even the last photo when he finds the blurry photo of the body, he's like doing it in front of a mirror, right? like so it's like an interior reflection of things. so maybe uh, with just that shot it's it's a subtle shot because the mirror's just a little off to the side. you can't really see it. so maybe that's an implication there. you know, a classic directorial use of mirrors that directors yeah. love to do.
1: That'd be cool.
0: Yeah, and it's even weird when uh, I think it's after that he goes to the uh, the painter's house and the wife or girlfriend of the painter who, who he clearly wants in some way. Like they both, they're clearly in some kind of connection with each other because you know he sees her. They're having she's having sex with the painter and she's like eyeing him like, "Don't go, don't go." It's like she clearly wants him, but. I don't know like what the specifics of that relationship are, though it's clear that the two are somewhat attracted to each other.
1: Yeah, exactly. It seems it seems like just another sort of missed missed opportunity that's being paraded in front of him. Uh, I I kind of like him in that scene specifically. He looks so just kind of a um, sort of a uh, low level distraught and regret and regretful in that scene. I think I think that's the part of the movie where he's really realizing, you know, that a, a different life isn't going to happen for him kind of thing and you know he's seeing these these potential roads of meaning as uh, sort of a uh, sort of uh, diverge from him kind of thing yeah
0: it sort of seems like he's like devoted so much time to his photographs and his art and but now that's just been stolen from him and so he's like mm-hmm. oh he, he has this other potential human connection but it's like gone already <laughs> then it's after that that uh i think she does come back with him to his place and uh, but they both kind of take the whole thing in stride. Like they're just so like flat about how they describe. Like yeah, um, this guy was murdered and stuff, and I caught it. And they're just they're just so flat. It's like well, why was he uh, why was he murdered? He's like I didn't ask. Like he it's sort of it's weird the way they just coldly play it off. But it's almost just more like that that reality or that line of potential meaning for me has just slipped through my fingers. Right, and he's just sort of lost his affect for that that's kind of how it feels like
1: yeah that that's a good catch it's a yeah it's like um it's it's lost interest for him like everything else seems to eventually lose interest for him so he kind of discards it right away
0: and then i think it's after that we he, he goes to that club where the yardbirds are playing but i'm always concerned it, it it's a really famous scene in the movie just because it has you know pre-led zeppelin jimmy page and jeff beck in this like european art film right and it's kind of an interesting thing but why does he go there i'm always confused as to why he goes to the club it's not it's not like he's meeting anybody there he just winds up there no
1: No, and that's what i was saying how it's kind of like it's like a pure thematic thing right this whole sequence is just a lead up to the punchline of of him grabbing the sort of treasured artifact of the guitar then running outside then just throwing it on the street once he's taken it from other people. And then another guy picks it up and throws it away, which I guess is sort of a funny punchline um, considering what we've seen. But it's it's a pretty long scene just it, for that.
0: It's a very strange scene, too, because like the audience there is are just like zombies. They just look bored out of their minds as they're listening to this rock and roll. And then all of a sudden when Beck throws his... Uh, the head of his guitar, they're all like just screaming like, uh, like fangirls, like on the Ed Sullivan show after after it until he grabs it. And I got the idea that like, you know, in this moment, like this was like a prized possession. But once he's like out of the fog of the room, it's just nothing to him. So he just discards it. And then the other person just thinks the same. I mean, it's like a punchline thing, but it's just a bizarre route to to take for just this one thing. One scene. I guess there's like a thematic purpose for it, and it's kind of fun to just have like some rock and roll. I guess uh, originally, originally he wanted the Who actually to be in that scene, but I don't know why he wasn't able to get them.
1: huh I I think the yard breaks were work kind of well. I, I like the I like the image of Jeff Beck slamming his guitar against them at the amp. It's a good song for it too. But yeah, definitely not a scene that needs to exist.
0: Yeah. I'm not saying it does. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad scene. It's just bizarre the rest of the film but I, and I, I wonder if like the rock music thing it's like i don't know destroying the instruments like a uh, the lack of uh attention people have for art even in like pop art like rock and roll but i don't know that that reads maybe a little thin to me
1: <laughs> I, get, I get what you mean though it uh, i'd like to find some purpose for it <laughs> somewhere some yeah. over uh, overarching purpose
0: yeah. Then he goes to that mansion where his friend is, and everyone's just stoned out of his mi- their minds. And she's, he still doesn't believe him about the photos. And then I think it's that model he he photographed earlier in that sensual way, comes up to him. And he's like, "Aren't you supposed to be in Paris?" And she's like, "I am in Paris," which uh, you know highlights the subjectivity of reality, <laughs> right? So
1: <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think it's pretty much after that then we get the final scene where he ventures back to that park and when the tennis court the mimes show up and they play imaginary tennis yeah um, they're pretty you know, good it's a, at it yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a pretty it's a pretty inspired scene i would say it's just it has a very neck and negative capability they just, they just show up and they they mime what they're doing because you know in reality this isn't a this isn't reality it's just a fiction right just like the mimes are Pretending, and it's a great little uh thing how he go he then decides to embrace just the whole artifice and subjectivity of his existence by going along with it and it's a great touch when he uh he throws uh, the ball back at them but then we hear the the ball being hit like on a tennis racket but we know that there is no ball but we hear it uh diegetically and then it go, it uh zooms out and uh you know we just see him in the field and he kind of like blows up in the, yeah. in the frame right and that's the end of the film. I,
1: I like it even as a mini kind of even even as a as a short film in itself i, I like that scene it's very fun it's very inspired like you said and um you, you know i think it eventually earns that sort of disintegration into into um, sort of semi didactic art, art filmisms that it does. It, ultimately, I think it it manages that transformation quite well, and it and it did end on a note that, that I found pretty funny, um, yeah. and and sort of pretty and pretty uh, pretty thought provoking as well.
0: It allows the main character to just be humanized just a little bit in the end. You know, from the smarmy guy we've seen before. You know, you kind of get the sense that like it's something relatable the need for us to believe that what we're doing has importance to ourselves and to the world at large but ultimately and you know classic euro, euro art uh film uh chic uh there is no purpose to it just what we make for ourselves and yeah in this case there is no purpose because he doesn't even exist he's all just part of this little fiction that antonioni has created
1: so. yeah it's very fun
0: yeah so that's blow up uh Overall, I would say, well, not necessarily the most like you know emotionally gut wrenching film or anything like that. I su- I still think it achieves greatness for what Antonioni is-, is trying to convey and does in fact achieve in this film. Yeah, so I guess that uh, film out of the way, we can get to the second film in this uh, in this influence trilogy, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 film, uh, The Conversation. As we said earlier, uh, like these three films kind of focus on some things as things that are so Kind of different parts of storytelling. And censors. Blow Up* has a very, sort of like, like detached uh, thematic perspective to what it happens. The conversation is a much more character-driven film, like psych- psychologically driven film. Even if it's not quite as subjective as *Blow Up*, it's still a more internalized film. Though there is a plot, and the plot is like more clearly lined out, even if there is some vagueness to it, and that's the point. But the conversation, I would say, is a more grounded in reality film even as it does embrace interiority more
1: yeah yeah it's basically yeah a more character focused version of our next film they're they're obviously quite a bit more closely related to each other than than to our first film uh yeah this one i don't know it, it uh i would very much like to to watch it again because it sort of won me over as i watched it uh it, it, i was sort of for the first little chunk, I, I, I guess my overall take would have been that I didn't quite think the, the, the sort of character work was interesting or sort of nuanced enough to to compensate for the fact that the thriller part was so sort of sl- slow and kind of deliberate and so vague. Uh, but I, I don't know, it, it it all kind of coalesced for me, I think, by the end especially because w- once we get into the more subjective internalized stuff and once the dread really ramps up kind of thing, that I- it's really one I would want to have another crack at, I think. Maybe on a on a better TV, you know, <laughs> may- maybe on a, a cooler day where it's not so oppressively hot as I'm trying to watch a movie. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, I think this one will be interesting to talk over because I think there's a lot to, to talk about, more than I would have given it credit for initially.
0: Like Blow Up, I do think it's a great film, and I think it does get sandwiched in between, like, you know, Coppola's other big 70s films, which were, like, it's sort of weird to think how, like, you know, this is between the first two Godfather films, and then obviously in the 70s, 70s, he did Apocalypse Now, and those three films are such titanic influences on American film, right, and... They they all have this kind of very mythopoetic, operatic kind of approach to it, but this film is not operatic. It's quite like small and intimate, like chamber piece of a film almost, which is uh, which is interesting and shows Coppola's versatility at his heights, though he's never reached the heights of those seventies films.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not one I really hear about at all. It's set as like a footnote to, to this trilogy. It, it, the only con- context I usually hear about this movie is, you know, there was another film that was influenced by Blow Up besides Blow Out. <laughs> that, that's usually when I hear about this movie, to be honest with you. Uh,
0: from being frank, I think this might be arguably my favorite out of the three. Maybe it's just because, like, it has, the, I think, the strongest individual character work, which at first maybe doesn't seem like much, but as it goes on and we see more of this character and, the paranoia that seeks in like, I think it becomes a truly excellent character study of this guy as well as paranoia. I think it's might be arguably the most multi-layered of the three films that we're watching. I don't know if you feel that same way.
1: I could see agreeing with that. I I think, I think I would probably rank it first, Uh, 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 especially in hindsight, especially with more time with it. I, I think so too. I would, I could say it now, I'd probably uh, yeah, I'd probably go conversation blowout, out blow up, I think uh, okay as as my tri- as my uh, ranking, but uh it, it, it's especially I think if I rewatch conversation,
0: uh yeah, just to get our my ranking, I would go conversation blow up, blow out, but mm. so I guess we can get into yeah the film proper with uh, the conversation. I think we can proceed a little more linearly with this film than with blow up, but. Mm-hmm. One thing I find funny is that uh, Robert Duvall in the film, who is uncredited, is just called the director. The uh, one of the the company that the financed this movie is called the Directors Company.
1: <laughs> That's
0: funny. I have no idea if that's a joke or if that's a real company, but yeah, we got that opening shot, which is like a god's eyes perspective. Uh, we zoom in on the mime, which is an obvious reference to Antonioni's film. But uh, it's a good opening shot. It it goes on for a while, but it has it works well because it does give a correlation to Harry Call, uh, played by Jane Hackman. Uh, you know, he has this perspective because others cannot perceive him in like this godlike way. But from this perspective, these people are just inscrutable ants to him Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it it does a great job uh sort of establishing the geography of the scene and everything we get a lot of shots with the interior of his truck too. The uh, sort of isolation between him and and everybody else in that sense as well. Like there, there's there's a there's a there's a shot I think where there's like girls like checking themselves in the mirror or something. Like it's a double sided, not the mirror, you know, the window. It's a double sided window so they can see out, but nobody can actually see at them. And like life is sort of carrying on as they're in in the um, the truck doing their surveillance.
0: That scene—it's kind of funny because uh, his partner there, or just his colleague Stan, who's played by uh, John Cazale. Who I should mention—John uh, Cazale played Fredo Corleone in the first two Godfather films, and he only had three other films hmm. uh, besides the first two Godfathers, which includes the conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and the Deer Hunter. Then he died really? of lung, died of cancer, and uh, but those are the only five films that he starred in. Wow! <laughs> Not. Not a, bad, not a bad resume for an actor. No, uh, not at all. In that scene, like, yeah, the girls are checking themselves out, and he's sort of like, yeah, ladies, uh, show me something. But then Call is just so <laughs> disinterested, and he tells him to <laughs> knock it off. But, uh, but mm-hmm. before we even get into Harry Calls, like, in his all his things. It's interesting, his name, uh, Call, is actually a uh, result of a typo in the script. Because a call is actually a um, the membrane which encloses the fetus, and which the fetus can uh, still retain once it's outside of the womb, mm-hmm. and and it's funny because call is sort of like this because he sees he himself sees others through a barrier that he places around himself, right? And even like his uh, the raincoat that he wears, like it's like translucent, right? So it's like he can see and hear these shapes and perspectives, but he doesn't have the full picture of things. Mm-hmm. Some subtle use of like symbolic names and imagery that works pretty well in a non obvious didactic way.
1: Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't super think about either of those facts watching. So I, I think it was yeah, very, very nicely uh, sort of uh, threaded into everything.
0: This whole opening basically just is them tracking the this couple who we I guess we assume they're a couple. It kind of you kind of get the sense that they know that they're being tracked, of course, right? So it kind of becomes a game of who's tracking who in the shot, right? You know, they they notice there's one guy who's following them, and there's a, a funny thing is when Call is outside the van. And then the mime comes up to him and he just leaves. <laughs> it's the mime that fucks the things up yeah. for him, which is funny. Uh, yeah. I also wonder: uh, is uh, the Christmas setting supposed to be kind of ironic in like a? Call, is it linking him to Santa Claus? He uh, he, <laughs> he, he sees you when you're sleeping.
1: <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I, I almost, well, well, yeah, That's a funny. That's a funny take. I, li- I like that take. I, I, I guess I guess also in another sense, I, I would say it's supposed to be like, um, I, you know, it's, it's just a, it's the so-called loneliest time of the year, I suppose, if you're by yourself. I guess it's supposed to just highlight the fact that he doesn't have anybody around him, right?
0: Yeah, and I guess it also is interesting because we find out he's like a Catholic, too, mm-hmm. which is an interesting detail and plays into the characters overall feelings of guilt that he has throughout this whole movie we hear it sets up these things that are played back constantly like there's that uh her singing that song about the birds i think and then there's when they see that homeless person they're like he was once somebody's baby boy like these things constantly repeat throughout the whole film well both when he's listening to the tapes and when he's uh just in his even in his own mind
1: yeah, they they repeat and then they're later, of course, with the with the twist recontextualized at the end. It's it's like he it's like him and the film are like turning over these these words in in their mind because they they can sort of take them in but they can't totally understand them like that. That that's sort of the big thing with him, obviously, is that uh, you know he he's capable of viewing the rest of the world from kind of a god's eye view but he can't really totally integrate with people or, or totally understand them in any sort of deep way like his surveillance is continually sort of interrupted it, it literally interrupted of course at the uh, towards the end of the, the film uh, to his downfall kind of thing he just doesn't really understand people
0: i in my notes i kind of wrote down he's like a formalist Almost like he he doesn't care for the content of things. He just gets this mechanical thrill of recording for its own sake. It's like, you know, without inner feeling, he's just recording these things. Right. But he's emotionally distancing himself from people. But and that's like a big theme of the film is just the way people distance themselves from like other relationships and just humanity as a whole. And that's very much embodied in the main character of Harry Call. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, of course, we find out he's doing it as a kind of like he's started dissociating on purpose to sort of deal with his guilt over over what he did or what he what he did through his job kind of thing
0: it's pretty much after like that opening scene we get more about colin and his inner his own life uh, what do you think of gene hackman as his performance in this because there's there's probably like well it's not like a dy- super dynamic performance just because the guy is so emotionally walled off from things it's more actor focused i would say than than blow up Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: yeah yeah i I think that yeah there's a little more there's a little more versatility there for sure and i think there's a li- there's a lot more kind of depth depth there i think i think he's perfectly playing like this mix of of guilt and kind of fear of, of connecting with people like there's this sternness he kind of used uh, uses against people to to mask the, this sternness and formality he uses to mask the fact that he can't totally let himself get close to other people that I think is great. I think the parts where he, 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 you know, he he really begins to have breakdowns and gets fucked with mentally. I think he, 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 he plays quite well. I think, I think it's quite a great performance.
0: Yeah. He really conveys like a central deeper conflict is that like it's, his professionalism like his professional ethics mixing with his own morality that very much causes this kind of um this mental breakdown that he has because he builds his whole life on um uh, abiding by these these ethics he has in his profession but at the same time like he has this deep-seated guilt from his catholic upbringing and such that he can't fully dispense with right even if he may think he does but he truly can't. So, and he I'd say like Hackman plays that kind of conflict, you can tell, between professionalism and just an innate humanity and the conflict between those pretty well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree for sure.
0: Yeah, we uh, get those long takes of him in his apartment, whether he is in or out of the frame, that just shows the kind of barrenness of his life. He, he has like three locks on his door. <laughs> And he, he's, like, pissed off that the woman knows that it's his birthday.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we see the quick film. We, we see the quick scene, too, of him playing sax, I think, right before that or right after that. Uh, it's playing sax along with uh, a record, Grishly, you know, trying to make art with other people sort of virtually almost um, without actual human interface, um, which, which I thought was a little... When I first started watching the movie, I thought it was a little too quick and a little too kind of cheap and a little too frivolous. But I think obviously it kind of that that strand kind of kind of mutates that that uh, motif uh, kind of mutates and pays off quite well at the end of the movie in particular.
0: Yeah, Speaking of his uh, the music, the movie is mostly scored with the piano. And uh, mm-hmm. I think the p- the piano score is pretty effective. I think Coppola even said that he chose the piano because it's a very lonely kind of instrument. Whether you agree with that or not, it does the sort of drones of the piano and kind of reflect both the, the alien, the coldness, as well as the sort of melancholy that the guy experiences at the same time. Mm-hmm. yeah Yeah. for sure the the saxophone very much does come back into play uh near the end of course in that final shot but i sort of wondered if like uh, yeah like you said how maybe there's a bit of a trite thing of like him yeah trying to uh, make art with somebody that isn't human that seems a little facile but i sort of wondered if it's still just part of that impassioning impassionate thing like is he just like aping what is on the recording type of thing I, i i didn't get a sense of the recording that he was playing to know if he's just aping what's on it or he's actually like improvising mm. over it so i don't really know
1: yeah i'd like to know that too like just, just given his sort of strained facial expressions and stuff i thought he was improvising, especially at the end but towards the start that was like the off-the-cuff impression i got but i mean yeah i would have to be more familiar with the record to, to tell that for sure i suppose
0: i think it's even after we we see him after he first drops off this, the tapes at uh, you know his workplace, which again is just a big vacuous uh, warehouse type building with one little sect of works workspace, but uh, I think it's for after that he goes to visit this woman who he's in a relationship with, but even there he like withholds pretty much everything from her.
1: Yeah, pretty depressing.
0: <laughs> well, but she seems to like it though.
1: <laughs> but like, yeah, I,
0: yeah. I sort how long have they been together? Do they even say?
1: I don't know. They no, they don't say where they met, how long they've been together, wh- if they even meet outside of the apartment. I got the impression he just sort of stops by most of the time. Um, yeah, which I kind of like. It's part of the weird kind of ambiguity of that the 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 the, 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 the sort of deadness and ambiguity of that relationship. I kind of like that, that detail that the 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 detail that there's no details of that relationship i should say
0: yeah i, I kind of wonder how does a guy like this uh meet meet anybody through this kind of manner mm-hmm. but like yeah like she doesn't even know that it's his birthday and then he like lies about her his age because like the flower people like sent him something it's like happy birthday you're 44 years old and then he tells her that he's 42 (laughs) so uh, did the did the flower people get it wrong or is he telling the truth now i don't know
1: yeah it's 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 hard to tell anything about this guy you don't really hear anything about him beyond what he did uh in the past that that sort of critical incident
0: yeah it's weird because he claims that uh, he does he tells her that he doesn't have any secrets right so you're kind of wondering well is he covering up a past trauma or, or is he just like, you know, a one dimensional man, I guess you can say, like he's just so mechanical in this, in this existence that he has. Mm-hmm. So I I almost wonder like, you know, like with, not just with the call thing, but like, it also relates to like with the embryonic sac that the word originates from, I guess without, uh, it's sort of like he wants to be born with, that sack where he's kind of like without sin and demons kind of a thing i think that's also like where that symbolism also comes in which obviously is i think is a decent way of linking it because we do find out he's a catholic
1: yeah exactly exactly yeah an interesting thing i think i read though when when i was looking up this movie you said about the Catholicism part i think coppola said that it was it was also chosen because you know, he viewed it as a sort of primitive early form of surveillance or whatever, that the confession is like the earliest form of surveillance or something he said. So it ties into that theme as well, which I thought was kind of interesting.
0: Catholicism, because there's that famous scene in The Godfather where Al Pacino, Michael Corleone, orders all these murders just as he's having his uh, nephew baptized. Coppola and uh, the uh, ironies of... a. Uh living a good catholic existence right
1: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly
0: i think it's after that there's like a very noirish kind of shot with him on the bus and you know he's just all in black and then all of a sudden there's a, a flashback he has to the couple you know that he was uh spying on earlier but without audi- audio and when the bus lights go out at first when i first watched it i was kind of like what what triggers the flashback at first but i kind of i've often come to the conclusion that maybe like this whole this potential trouble this hair that he's surveying is in is his way of kind of regaining humanity like in a in a morality sense but he's still doing it from a distance right Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah or 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 not even it, it almost seems like in a certain to a certain extent he even feels too far gone for that he's just sort of almost trying to repay a debt or something because he's just running over the same scenario as you know he did in the past as a form of as a as a form of atonement in a, in a kind of legalistic catholic way kind of thing in in a similar way i guess that's one of the big linkages of uh, of this movie and the next one is that they're both trying to to uh, sort of reroll um a previous scenario and and sort of make up for it whereas the next one kind of the next one uses its ending more as it's kind of this this dark joke kind of thing the, the, yeah <laughs> a very diploma-esque thing which we'll get to uh the, this one is more it's, it's more played as a as a kind of a very more nuanced and internalized tragedy kind of thing
0: yeah sure Everyone, i don't know if it's so much of a tragedy but it is very much uh it it does play itself more from the from a psychological perspective rather than uh Purely cinematic, kind of formal perspective, which is where De Palma ultimately takes that joke at the end of that movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess I shouldn't say, like, a liter- it's not a literal tragedy, you know, not in the Shakespeare sense or anything. Uh, like, be- sure. be- Because he's not being undone. Of course, Ben. Like it's it's really nothing to do with, with anything he specifically does. Does it's just sort of tragic. Tragic, and I guess it's more pathetic or any or something, right? It's a tale of this guy's impotence, kind of thing, when it comes to trying to connect with people. Yeah,
0: that's sort of the thing I always hear with like with tragedies. Like they say things are tragedies, but it's like tragedy usually implies someone great falling. I don't think Call is necessarily anybody great like he's great at what he does but you know i don't think he's like necessarily a great
1: human being right it's it's colloquially tragic you know it's tragic it's it's tragic in the sense that you know we use it every day not literally tragic though yeah
0: Yeah, sure. Like, it's just tragic in the sense that, like, anything bad happening to somebody who otherwise doesn't deserve this to happen to is tragic. Anyway, regardless, I think it's after this he goes to uh, deliver the the tapes to the director's assistant, who's played by Harrison Ford. Uh, Pre Han Solo, uh, but I, w- yeah. I wouldn't say uh, Harrison Ford really makes much of an impression in this. I mean, it's not a particularly media role. But...
1: No, the, the, the well, he just makes an impression by being Harrison Ford, looking exactly like Han Solo at this particular time, playing this guy. I mean, it's hard to to think of him as anything other than Harrison Ford. I do like the shots
0: when the uh, call sits down and Ford is on the other end and. It has this very flat two-dimensional shot, and then like it does the cutting back and forth, but it still holds it on that flat uh, staging that it's doing, which is kind of an interesting way to do it. It's not like over-the-shoulder stuff. It's still the same framing, but we're just getting closer shots. That also emphasizes like the distance that Call wants to keep until he unfortunately gets too close mm-hmm. towards the, the end of the scene.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, does he keep the tapes, actually? Does he still want to keep monitor- monitoring them with that... Because I think, yeah, he refuses to give them up for a while. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, he, he, he yeah, that first kind of confrontation where he refuses to give them up. Then, yeah, the then we get another scene right where he sort of um, because he he doesn't quite closely examine them, I think, until that that point, right? And then we get we get more process scenes, like I was talking about, of him sort of examining the tapes, not not quite as flashy as the. Not quite, not obviously not as visual as blow up, not quite as flashy as blow out. I mean, uh, I will, I will say, I think blow it has, you know, some of the most, the the most formally interesting process scenes in these movies, especially the first one where you see him sort of miming the, um, the, the mic as he's reimagining what happened, but this is okay. It's not not my favorite part of the movie, but it's okay.
0: I I agree. It's sort of, um, the whole movie of the conversation has this more kind of objective angle to to it not in quite the detached way that blow up has and it's obviously not as uh stylistically gaudy as uh blow out of course but it has a more i don't know there's something kind of like antiseptic yet still creaky about it i i don't know how to describe uh, the way this movie feels but
1: yeah no no i get i get what you mean yeah there's i guess yeah there's something simultaneously cold externally and sort of Tortured uh, um, in, in tragic uh, internally w- with him. It's this weird contrast between the coldness and the sparseness of the environments and in his own noggin, which where, the, where the interest lies. And sometimes, sometimes when the internal stuff drops away and you just get people sitting in a room and you just get people moving things... It's really not as interesting. Like, I would say the middle section, too, when they're at the party and they're at the with the surveillance show, also not super interesting to me.
0: I would agree. I don't think it's, like, terrible, but it is, like, compared to the better scenes of the film, that's the one part of the film you could argue drags, in my opinion. That even in this scene where he's going through them, like, the interesting stuff here is when, you know, Stan, uh, John Cazale, starts talking to him. Like, that's the actual interesting part of the scene. It's when he's trying to listen to their conversation, and he keeps making these like comments, and he keeps telling them to shut up, but then uh, we get the burr when he's like, uh, "Oh Jesus Christ, Harry, why can't we do this?" And he's like, "Hey, don't don't use that word in vain," which is the first time we get of uh, his Catholicism. I think even before he goes goes to the priest yeah yeah he's like yeah. what he's like what i just want to know what they're talking about there's got to be something more interesting he's like i it's just human nature to be curious he's like i think he has the license like, i don't i don't know anything about human nature i don't know anything about curiosity it's just my business <laughs>
1: so- it's so much that scene goes on for so long and he's so annoying effectively that it started to annoy me that was the part when i first started watching this movie where it was really losing me when <laughs> you're just sitting there listening to this guy yammer <laughs>
0: He, he is kind of annoying because you're like trying to focus in on the plot, but then he just, you just hear his voice kind of interfere. Like, what a stupid conversation. It's like, shut up. It's, it's kind of amusing, but I think he does give the character a little bit of depth because obviously he's not the main focus but he obviously idolizes uh harry call in some way even if he doesn't take the work as seriously and you can sell tell he wants to have a kind of real conversation with the guy who he idolizes but he's kind of just coldly shut out and you can see later at the convention when he tries to like make up to him that like call does feel like he hurts his feelings but obviously he can't let him truly know how much to the extent he feels that so i think in just that little interaction i think john kazale gives the small character some some depth outside of just a immediate function
1: yeah, exactly yeah i agree the, the, the it's small cast but i think they all they all more or less have ha, have uh, a robust enough function to serve you know the character whom everything orbits around kind of thing.
0: I also want to know kind of like with blow up, do you think that call does uh, manufacture the murder plot in his own mind? In, oh,
1: and oh, this one too, like, like, yeah. uh, um, I don't, I don't think so. I think I would personally say it has to be the point that people are doing things that he doesn't understand. Like, I think the only, the, the twist at first I thought was a twist for the sake of a twist and I didn't really like it that much, but the more I think about it, I think it it kind of works because it's so uh, outside of any sort of conspiracy he could have even thought of it. Like it's such a bizarre reversal of fortune that it just hammers home to the point that he can't understand human behavior, even if he can observe them, kind of thing. Like he just uh, he's he, he's incapable of of understanding human reactions in human actions, despite the fact that, you know, he's he's not the only sort of conscious subject in the world kind of thing. Like, I, I think it has to be that there's other people doing things outside of himself, To, to though that sounds simplistic, you know what I mean?
0: Sure, and I, I sometimes wondered if, like, the, the ambiguity of the, the murder plot, but I also feel like at the end there are some, like, weird things, like, okay, we know that... From his perspective, he was murdered in the in the room besides his, but then like the, we see like there's a car crash that it's blamed on, right? But then I feel like it's not too hard if they were able to murder this like serious guy and like it kind of implies that perhaps uh you know Harrison Ford probably was in on it, they probably had the ability to fake it this way, so it's not totally without beyond the bounds of what these people probably are capable of doing, right.
1: Mm-hmm. and i get what you mean too i would definitely like to watch it again with the idea that it could be ambiguous in mind i suppose i i shouldn't shouldn't have been so hard-lined about my own interpretation i just i just feel like you know when i came out came away from it i felt like it was real i and i felt sort of just as bewildered as he did i suppose which i guess i figured was the point
0: i sometimes wonder because coppola once compared a uh... Harry called to Joseph K. from the Trial by Kafka, and I kind of—he didn't really give from the excerpt I read. He didn't really give the reason as to why he thought there was this connection. But in my mind, I kind of wonder because one of the ways to view the trial. Well, I mean, both characters are victims of this strange conspiracy amongst these shadow players who they don't really understand. But like one of the interpretations of the trial is that this conspiracy could simply just be like a convoluted form of self-punishment and masochism that Mm -hmm. Joseph K K wants to give to himself because of his small place in like the, uh, you know, the mechanical cog of where he lives. Right. So maybe that's why I kind of was thinking that this whole murder thing is just a ploy of his own mind. But, and then at the same time in the trial, that stuff really does happen to him. Like he does get murdered at the end. So Maybe like with Call, there is something that is going on, but he's like internalizing it in his own kind of way, the way Joseph K. is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways to view it in that it's just multi-layered like you said in a good way yeah he
0: goes to that uh the convention which is kind of interesting how it's like these people spy on other people and there's a whole convention <laughs> honoring their uh, new uh their new breakthroughs like there's a camera and a clock and there's an automatic recording when you pick up a phone to answer it it's kind of interesting because like you know their technology is kind of celebrated because you know people are attracted to these new advancements but it's also a way of connecting people and unwanted ways (laughs) via surveillance
1: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly
0: so it's kind of a funny commentary but i don't think the scene needs to be as long as it is
1: yeah it's, it's a little long at least the movie is fairly brisk i mean it's under two hours it's not it's not, not exactly a behemoth. It's 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 deliberately paced, but it, it, it goes by fairly quick.
0: Yeah, it's also how he's uh, regarded as a legend by the other surveillance guys, right? But he doesn't take any pride in this himself. And it kind of shows when he goes to the priest and he says that he does not hold any responsibility to himself. Yet it, we find out later that, like, we don't know the full details, but he taped something and the discovery of those tapes led to a triple murder, I think. Mm -hmm. So like, but yet he doesn't hold any responsibility for that. He wants to be just a, you know, he's just like bipartisan,
1: right? Or or yeah, he tries to convince himself. Yeah, sort of um, fruitlessly that he's not. Yeah, especially to that guy he argues with at the party and and such. That's, I suppose, his surface level motivation. But his greatest terror seems to be becoming a cog in the machine again. Which unfortunately he does.
0: That also that scene. I think there's a gu- a nice scene uh, there when when they go back to the office and he has that lonely conversation with uh, that woman who's attracted to him and who he later ends up going to bed with. You know, he says to her like, you know, would you go back to somebody who told you nothing about himself? There would be no way of. Knowing, which is sort of an interesting uh, way to um, say the way people are attracted to the cracks and mysteries of of existence in people, and it does it in a fairly not subtle because it's like very obvious dialogue, but you know it's not in a ham-handed way. And I also like when they come in with the motorcycle just going around, but we don't really hear them; we just hear that piano. overpower as he walks away Uh, it's a nice it's a nice touch that just shows how disconnected he is from when he's even supposed to be having fun with people
1: yeah yeah i like this yeah i like how sparingly and sort of deliberately the score is deployed every time Uh, it's very nice
0: though i don't really like uh the guy who keeps questioning him it's just it's just a very stock kind of character thing of a guy just like Aching a guy on for more information, you can tell where it's gonna go. I mean, it's it's not like a huge thing, but it's just sort of an eye roll to, to watch it play out at times.
1: No, no, I definitely agree. It, it, I would have almost liked a more more subtle or maybe even internal way of having his backstory be revealed. It got it just it's kind of unfortunate, yeah, that the guy just basically almost unprompted in the middle of a party with other people says you know lays out this guy's backstory the reason why he's traumatized for us the viewer but you know it's not the worst thing in the world i i'd, I'd certainly give it a pass they tape him
0: while he's talking to the to the woman merida i think that's her name and then he for the first time shows some he loses his shit i mean him. good
1: what an asshole kick him out
0: i'd be pissed too
1: <laughs> yeah i know my that's private as
0: conversation records well. yeah for- Especially a conversation like that, it was like this supposedly, well, deep by his standards of confessional conversations, but for that it's like, no, you don't interfere with my shit, get the fuck out.
1: Yeah, I know, finally. Yeah, so then he's... he's. Almost alone again, he stays with that that lady,
0: yeah, but he wants to go back to the tapes, though, and like it's it, the way he goes, he's like, you hear this in her voice, there's fear in her voice, and he's like shaking, and but then she reminds him, like it's a job, you're you're not supposed to feel anything about it, which is like how he has treated it, but now he's not anymore so. Mm-hmm. yeah for sure and now we get that dream sequence mm-hmm. uh, where he's talking to the woman in the in the fog
1: yeah which i like i liked when the real subjective stuff sort of pops in Yeah, you know, i was i think that was just about the point where i was beginning to kind of um maybe turn around on the movie a little bit and sort of see it see its strengths for what they were uh, i think yeah i was sort of slightly zoning out during the preceding couple of scenes a little bit but I think as we near kind of the third act of the film, and we really start to exclusively reside in this guy's head, I think the film uh, sort of really picks up steam. I, I like I even just like the set deck here and everything with the fog, this foggy forest. It looks like a like a crypt in a Hammer horror movie or something.
0: Yeah, it has that subconscious uh, imagery, right? That works well but even uh, what does he say to her he says you know that he had sickness and paralysis as a boy and he uh he wished to uh, die in his overflowing bath <laughs> and how, how he, he slugged a family friend who was an asshole. It's interesting because like she's still obscured to him in the fog and the dream. Right. So uh, like, like in real life, he, he doesn't have the full picture of her, but it's interesting because there's a part of his subconscious that wants to relay this information, but it conflicts with his, the ethics he has in his conscious waking life but it, it says, like, I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of murder. So, like, there's a sense that, like, he views his life as kind of just, like, nothing. Like, he doesn't see himself as anybody great or important, but he still has a concern for his fellow people, even if he doesn't want to admit it. And it does conflict with his own ethics mm-hmm. for what he's doing. So.
1: Yeah, he, he, it's, it's like the things, he, you know, the bad things he did were so overwhelming that he, he only uses views... His, his life at this point is like an instrument of atonement or something like that in, in a catholic sense almost you know you know he just wants to get right with uh with god god surveillance state you know uh, <laughs> that seems to be the implication
0: the ford steals the tapes and then the... He goes up to that building, which uh, you know looks very much like the buildings we see in the beginning of Blow Up. Uh, we see Robert Duvall there for the first time, uh, even though he's not credited in the film as the as the director. They he takes uh, his money, but you know he still knows that where the uh, the potential murder spot might be in the hotel, and he gets the hotel right next next to theirs. So
1: yeah just yeah just quite quickly i do like the scene where he returns the money a lot just because it's uh you're so trapped in there with those characters kind of thing and it's so overwhelming and only almost borderline surreal the way like you hear the tape playing loudly when he knocks in door before he comes in and the dog walks beside him and stuff you almost see like you feel like you're falling through the cracks of reality kind of thing even though you know it it ostensibly or you know it seems to take place in, in in the real world i just like that film for that that scene for for sort of ringing tension out of that moment very well but anyways
0: yeah so he drills a hole a surveillance hole in the bathroom and he keeps uh flushing the toilet to obscure the noise which obviously comes back later and he had that like close-up shot as he's like it zooms in right on his face as he's hearing things he doesn't want to want to hear and then he passes out. Then he goes up, and then he—he he doesn't actually see the murder, but like he hears it's sort of playing in his mind. As like you know, the the Hitchcocky and like Psycho like strings come in, and like the the blood is spattered over the the glass windows and such.
1: When he drills through, was he hearing a tape too that someone was using to disguise it? I thought that was the thing, right? Because you hear like a rewinding sound. Isn't it like somebody was playing a tape on the other side to mask the noise or something like that of them talking?
0: I think that's what it was,
1: yeah, yeah, I like I like that moment too because uh, you know it's a real turnaround moment where you know his surveillance is interrupted for the first time kind of thing, right?
0: I think yeah, it's after they find out that the director was the one murdered that he does go back there, right to that hotel room
1: Mm -hmm. yeah he goes back again yeah you're
0: right we find out that the director was murdered and you know in his mind we see him covered in plastic sheets in that other hotel room but you know everyone in the real world kind of sees that he says that he died in a car crash and then you know in his mind he's replaying the tape you know he'll kill us if he had the chance and but you know in the beginning he was focusing on the he'll kill the the word kill was so emphasized but now it's us but now it becomes like a hey he'd kill us he'd kill us if he had the chance whereas before it was like a despairing thing like oh god he, he's gonna kill us right now it's like right it's becomes like a justification thing
1: yeah i like i like that part at all again i, I thought it was just a a silly and slightly frivolous twist at at the start, but I uh, at first, but I really can kind of like it after viewing the whole picture, kind of thing. Well, it works well
0: because, like, you know, like the fact that he gave them the tape, right? It led to him going to that hotel room where they had the chance to murder him, right? So now his guilt really does come back into fruition with that
1: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly
0: i also noticed uh i wonder if the shining took something from this because uh when he goes back to the hotel room and the blood comes out of the toilet
1: oh right yeah yeah that's that's a good point i like that part too it's like it's it's one of the only parts in the movie where there's a real kind of horror movie style sense of like it's sort of the culmination of the slow burn dread that i feel like a lot of modern horror movies try and accomplish kind of a lot of the time failing miserably um, but, but I like the way this, this movie has has this sort of slow burn, psychologically in guide sense of dread that only culminates at a few specific points like that. It's a very satisfying payoff.
0: Yeah, the very horror aspects of it, like when the strings kick in, when he imagines the murder, it, it has a really strong, eerie effect that a lot of very straightforward horror films can't even achieve.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree.
0: So I think it's after uh, that, though, that he becomes increasingly paranoid that they're they're targeting him now
1: yeah yeah exactly yeah and then he he gets the call from from han solo
0: he he begins to believe that his apartment is bugged right yeah and then he starts (laughs) just fucking everything up
1: yeah i had seen that image online a lot of him playing the sax i didn't know what movie it was from so i was glad to finally find discover that image of him playing the sax in the busted up apartment um, and as a final act of destruction, of course, he breaks the the Virgin Mary statue.
0: The constant reminder of his Catholic guilt, but now he's trying to remove that guilt and descend into his own paranoid delusions. I think it has a nice poetic ending because, well, one, it sets up the saxophone, but also, if there was a device, the only place now, because he's literally torn up every part of his apartment, the only place it could be now is in his is in the saxophone. If there was a device in his apartment. And that speaks a musical language, right? One that can't easily be decoded. And now that's what Call just retreats to, is he abandons language, communication, and everything by himself. Now he's just, with his music, his saxophone, a total soloist, nothing can hurt him and leave him in a sense of guilt anymore. It's, a, it's his destruction, but he's he probably has some kind of inner peace in in a very yeah, twisted yeah, kind yeah. of way.
1: Yeah, it's a very twisted-up kind of ending, which I like. I also like... The ca- how the camera like wanders back and forth twice before the credits just start rolling that way i think it's a nice touch it's a nice it's a nice uh, sort of subtle movement of the camera not subtle not literally subtle but it's a nice uh sort of uh encapsulation at the end of the movie just what like one kind of wandering around looking for something of worth yeah, as the movie comes to an end
0: i think overall yeah that's the conversation
1: so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that was that was our conversation on the conversation <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, uh, great yeah, great. Uh, so yeah, two uh, two great films in a row. Uh, we're gonna cap this uh, podcast trilogy off with Brian De Palma's nineteen eighty one thriller Blowout, uh, which he wrote and directed himself and was released in eighty one, starring John Hell Travolta, yes. John Travolta, and Nancy Allen. So overall, what are your thoughts on Blowout? <laughs>
1: well, well, I don't mean this as an insult to this movie. I'd say compared to the last two this one's uh, probably as shallow as a kiddie pool but it's a really fun thriller <laughs> it, it, there's some really great formal tracks but it's it, it's what you would imagine a movie by Brian De Palma would be like i i, w- I would say the, the first time i watched this movie i f- i really the ending really rubbed me the long way i thought it was it was so annoying and so kind of frivolous to end the whole thing on this this dark joke feels like a lot of the threads of the movie like the stuff about the the screams and everything earlier early on and the opening of the movie with the fake violence juxtaposed with the real one. It's just this big laid up to this stupid <laughs> joke that he has in store at the end of the movie, which I mean, maybe, maybe it is. I haven't decided yet if that's, if that's still the case, uh, but I, I, I at the very least see the formal sort of genius in this movie particularly the, the ending, too. So I had fun. I had a good laugh. The, the ending made me laugh this time instead, which I guess is an improvement. I don't yeah. know. I think it's pre- I think it's fun. I don't know. Uh,
0: I think it's a pretty good, fun thriller, uh, one of De Palma's more effective thrillers, I would say. Uh, and I get what you mean, where, like, the ending comes across just so kind of crass and just how uh, it all leads up to this really kind of, like, gallows humor ending but i think i can give actually a little bit of an emotional justification for it beyond the joke but uh as we get to it but uh i think there's some this movie definitely doesn't have the high-minded ideas of blow up and it doesn't have like a really deep character study like the conversation but it still stands as a pretty good thriller for what it is
1: uh, I, I agree. Like I, ha- I had a lot of fun. I think there's some pretty pretty cracking sequences in this one.
0: A lot of the themes and character stuff in it does seem maybe slight compared to the other two films, but I think for what it is, uh, it works well.
1: Yeah. yeah, the the problem too is is that it feels even more slight because a a lot of it feels like a continuation or a, or an inferior copy of stuff. like like um his his arc is essentially just a, a weaker version of the guy Gene Hackman's arc, Carrie Kazak in 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 the conversation, right? Like he's trying to write a past drawing. It, it, except he he doesn't seem obviously seem as disturbed. At the start or throughout, he's actually pretty chill for like two-thirds of the movie. Uh, and, and he, you know he's he's only pissed at the gallows humor ending at the end, which again is like a, this real kind of thriller move. It's effective, but it, it's just it's just not the same thing. It's like it's it, it's it's a very it's a very thrillerized version of the same thing
0: I think I have more history than Brian DuPont with De Palma in general than you do. Uh, do you have any other films of his that
1: you've seen? Yeah, no, this is the only one. I should probably get into more because it's just a good time.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I wouldn't exactly. Yeah, obviously, he's part of the movie Brad Generation. Uh, I wouldn't put him on the same level as Scorsese and Coppola, but I don't think he's really trying to be that kind of filmmaker. When people say he's like the next Hitchcock, he's like a Hitchcock protege. And like in a way, he is, but I don't think he's a full on Hitchcock, like. Imitator like I think he very much does play around with like the artifice and like the cheekiness of this kind of stuff in a almost in a way that presages somebody like Tarantino and it's not a surprise that Tarantino is a pretty huge fan of Brian De Palma. Like there's a, there's a real cheekiness to some of the artifice and the the kitsch that he kind of employs in his films, and he he's very self aware about it. Like he he knows what he's doing. I think very much so.
1: Yeah, that's part of the big joke of this movie too. Is that a lot of the threads leading up to the ending, all the way from the start, are about the juxtaposition between movie violence or you know artificial violence for thrills and and you know the real thing. You know, it literally opens with a fake movie within the movie. But then, <laughs> then of course, Brian De Palma views this movie as artifice kind of thing. He's viewing it like the movie Blowout itself is supposed to be a fun thriller, but it's about this guy descending from the world of dumb thrillers into the quote-unquote real world uh, in coming out scarred kind of thing. So that's that's part of the whole kind of ironic joke of everything with it.
0: Exactly, and that's part of the also like the part of the joke, but also kind of the emotional core of the ending which we'll get to but I guess like to start yeah De Palma is often accused of being like a misogynist and just a uh, visceral filmmaker that doesn't have much <laughs> intellect to say and I will say that yeah his treatment of women is definitely problematic uh, in sure. this film <laughs> in this film I would say as well but like I don't think he's a very visceral filmmaker I think he knows exactly what he's doing at every time he's very much like a he's like a scientific formalist like he has it down to a science with what he's doing so i don't think he's it's a particularly visceral kind of filmmaking that he goes for it's very much like a kid setting the train tracks up to play or getting all the dominoes in line to knock down right
1: yeah i know my friend and podcast co-host very much defends this movie for that reason because he just but but also understands why people wouldn't like it, like the the sort of toy box design of this movie. It's, it, yeah, it's like this sort of um, what are those machines called where it's a bunch of stuff that you set it off and it like causes a bunch of other things to happen. It's like, like a, you can a Rube Goldberg uh, machine. Rube, yeah, it's like kind of a Rube Goldberg machine where everything's faded towards doom and death from the very beginning kind of thing it's it's but De Palma's evil toy box basically and i mean you can you can love it and and go along with the ride or it can be repugnant to you right now i think i'm somewhere in the middle i, I at least am not repulsed by this movie in the same way
0: uh i acknowledge that uh De Palma has very problematic things, but I can't help but be very entertained by his films, and this film especially. Yeah, <laughs> so,
1: yeah it's uh, it's. A, I mean, I I always have a fun time throwing this one on. We start
0: off with. Uh a mise en bim, you know a fake story within the story the uh co-ed frenzy that's the name of the film uh, it's a uh, straight out of a jalo ripoff uh, yeah
1: exactly yeah it's like if it's a dep- a, a fake exaggerated sleazy movie within a department movie you know it's going to be double sleazy it's like sleazyception it's really just like girls with their tits out and stuff and you, you got that giallo music yeah you got that weird mask that you see briefly which actually looks <laughs> kind of cool i guess i don't know
0: yeah and you got the psycho reference of course with uh the shower that's something de palma always likes to do he always likes to have these fake out openings where it's like a tv show or a movie within a movie or it's on a set or something He he loves doing that like i said he loves to call attention to his own artifice and parodies himself it's a bit—it's a bit of a parody of himself so, because it's like you know everyone accused him of being a Hitchcock wannabe and was ripping off these slasher movies, and here is a literal trashy slasher ripoff right to open the movie. So,
1: that I, I do like it. It's—it's it's pretty fun. It it's frivolous but fun. So, yeah. so then yeah, we get the quick after the Psycho reference, we get the the, the quick <laughs> cut to uh, a uh, very chill, chillaxed John Travolta. Just yeah, kind of vibe in here.
0: No, we don't. We hear the scream first. That <laughs>
1: Oh, true. I, I didn't mention that. We, that... I should have mentioned that. The, the 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 shower scene is accompanied by a scream, uh, which is, of course, a, a motif running through the film, uh, leading towards the end. It, it's a, the sh- the shittiest scream ever, of course, on Prepper. Um...
0: <laughs> yeah, I so said John Travolta on here, and uh, as a character compared to, you know, David Hemmings in Blow Up and Harry Call in the conversation, he Seems a lot less complex, I would say. Like, he he has a backstory that explains why he is the way he is. He has some conflict and stuff, but it is still something that you can see, like a, a movie star, like John Travolta, filling out fine. Like, it's not like a super interiorized character.
1: Yeah, he's just kind of, like I was saying, he's just more or less vibing and being him, his movie star self. Like, I would say his backstory, unlike our previous film, it explains why he acts the way he does later on when the going gets tough, but it doesn't explain why he is like he is now because he's just sort of chill. Like, he doesn't really <laughs> seem to have any interior conflict whatsoever at the start of the movie. He's just hanging out.
0: Yeah, yeah. he's just like, hey, I'm just making these dog shit <laughs> exploitation movies with this, you know, Italian producer, right? And uh... Yeah,
1: he's just out there getting sounds. It seems like a nice life. I was thinking that when I was watching it last night, I mean, I'd take that life, making bed horror movies just chilling
0: yeah that that sounds like quite the industry and uh you know melu to to make your uh living and but i, I can kind of see why like you know because he was somebody who worked with the cops now he's just chilling in crappy exploitation films he has no uh, obligations to anybody you know that's why he's just chill he's removed this stuff from his life but mm, exactly. yeah he he doesn't exactly seem like he's haunted by anything when we first see him
1: no definitely not
0: it is also fun because when the 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 film's producer is like, I've heard that fucking wind noise a million times. Go and get me something new. I think that's what De Palma literally asked his sound guy to do before they started filming this movie. So,
1: oh, interesting. That's funny. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking that yesterday too. I wonder. What the th- what the sound guy for this movie was thinking during making this movie? That's got to be a bizarre project, to make us to be the sound guy in a film about a sound guy.
0: Then we get uh Governor McRyan. That's his, that's his name. He's introduced during the credits, where we get a classic uh, Brian De Palma split screen that he loves to use in all his movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, you know, it shows it side by side where it's like the news reports of the Liberty Day celebration and uh, Governor McRyan even though we don't ever hear what his politics are because De Palma obviously doesn't care and neither should we. Yeah, <laughs> oh, but yeah. it's a it's a nice image cuz it's like okay, we see like the mechanical stuff that goes on behind the audiovisual stuff juxtaposed with the actual presentation showing us the true form beneath the glitz of it, which is mm-hmm. a a nice a nice little visual uh representation of it
1: yeah it's just economical thriller stuff getting everything out like this movie it does a very fantastic job of getting to the point quickly I would say it's but it's a very economic film
0: he goes out to record uh, some sounds they call him a peeping Tom the obvious joke is that he's peeping with sound instead of vision I wouldn't say there's much of a voyeurism doesn't really play a huge theme in this movie it's more just a motif <laughs> throughout no
1: it, yeah it's not it's not really about surveillance or voyeurism or, or things like that in the same way at all that's yeah that's more just a motif that's used for the thrillers for for making a picture He's just making a thriller picture.
0: Yeah. That's all, just, That's
1: what it's all about.
0: We get a split diopter shot with the owl, the cuckooing, and then uh, mm-hmm. we hear the, um, you know, the blow, The well, the tire gets shot off, but it's made to seem like a blowout, right? But it obviously has some similarities to you know the Ch- the chappaquiddick incident with uh, senator edward kennedy where uh, he was uh, you know in the car that went off into the into a river and but the woman he was with drowned and it was kind of a huge embarrassment for the senator kennedy but the only difference here i think de palma tried to downplay the similarities to to it when he heard that it had some similarities to that but like so in this one it's the actual senator or the governor that dies, and it's the uh, woman he's with who lives. And uh, Travolta rescues you in classic movie hero fashion with the epic music yeah. sw- swelling up. I, I can't tell if that's meant to be uh, as <laughs> sincere or that's just De Palma having fun with, with the score in that way. I think it's honestly
1: both. I think he's the kind of guy who would do both. I think he, he's sincerely meant to be a heroic, likable figure, but also diploma is thinking this is the point in the movie where i can add this score to make it look like this thing in the movies that i like like i think it's always hyperlinking to other stuff even if it's not explicit you know he's always thinking about how this looks in compared to the other movies he likes
0: you know they go to the hospital and travolta who's i also say their character's names travolta's character's name is jack and uh, Nancy Allen's character's name is Sally. So uh, Jack and Sally uh, prefiguring the nightmare before Christmas.
1: Oh, damn. Wa- I didn't even know that. I, ha- I have to wonder uh, if the babes
0: came from this. It would be really funny if that if that was the case. That but... would be good stuff.
1: <laughs> so yeah. so he, see, he takes her to the hospital. Then she's all doped up the first time they meet. She's all uh, heckin', what? What an interesting character she is. She's all... Uh, all doped up yeah I'm, I'm being slightly slightly facetious here uh but uh, yeah
0: it's weird because it's such i remember uh jay hoberman uh the professional film critic though he did praise this film he called nancy allen's performance a one woman distanciation effect uh which is pretty damn harsh i, I would say but i kind of get what he means because she's such a when you just see her, she's such the embodiment of that bimbo uh, gum-chewing cliche, right? It's...
1: I know, the way she talks, the specific sort of speed and, and kind of diction she uses later on after she's not doped up. Uh, geez, I, I, but it, it's hard to tell if it, it it's her performance or his direction, though. Maybe he wants her to be like this, I don't know.
0: Well, I've seen her in other De Palma movies, and she doesn't act like this at all. Mm. so it's so it's very much, I think, De Palma's part. And I, I get the idea is that like she's obviously, well, she's not very smart, but she's somebody who likes to hide away from the world, including her own guilt. So maybe this whole bimbo-ish thing is kind of her way of uh, infantilizing herself and kind of hiding away from. Thing. So there's some justification for it, but she acts that way the, throughout the entire f- film, <laughs> even when that facade is supposed to crumble. So
1: I know. The, I, I wonder if he's, De Palma's mental arithmetic too was just that she, she was... She's, she's not skilled enough or, or smart enough to do anything else, so she's a scammer or whatever. <laughs> I, w- I wonder if that's what he thinks. <laughs> who knows?
0: Maybe, yeah, classic De Palma not writing women very well. But honestly, as far as his female characters go, at least there's some kind of justification for it, even if it's slightly uh, muddled in that sense. I will say there there is a worse actor. Uh, there's only that one scene when it's the governor's friend who comes to see Travolta. He just speaks with that, like, old Hollywood, like, you know, or just tongue near his, like, teeth, like – it's you want to ruin the guy's uh, reputation like it's like so hammy but it's like i feel like De Palma has has to be playing that shit up i, I don't know why it's like that but.
1: yeah a lot a lot of the dialogue in this movie almost feels kind of unreal or hyperreal or something like that it it's a very detached movie it's 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 hard to view this movie straight on kind of thing it's hard to move it view it as kind of you know a, a legitimate exercise in in drama or emotion or something like that sometimes
0: which can be said for nearly everything De, De Palma does uh, that's true. <laughs> even when like uh jack uh travolta goes to meet nancy allen uh when she's all doped up uh even the piano music that comes in and uh the way she's like don't look at me with no makeup it's like it's just seems so sudden that this comes through, but so again, it's De Palma's cheeky little artificial techniques. But also, maybe it's just because, like, you can tell Jack or Travolta has this kind of hero complex in this film, where he has to set things right. So maybe it's just this alpha male thing of like taking care of this helpless woman.
1: Yeah, it, it almost feels like a setup to too, again for the ending that he's going to become sort of emasculated by the end or whatever. He's he's viewed as this like Hollywood film star, this perfect action hero, despite you know, not being a cop anymore, despite barely working with the cops. But in fact, you know, he's just some, some dweeb like everybody <laughs> else as the ending is gonna reveal.
0: Uh we don't really need to go into the whole thing where it's like they're trying to cover up his reputation because that's all just surface dressing for this formal story that De is doing, even though that's a potential theme, but he doesn't want to explore it. And neither should we. Uh, <laughs> he, he, yeah, so he takes uh, her back to that hotel where he tries to he replays the stuff in his head. And like you said, the, the effect of using the split diopter of uh, Travolta's face uh, corresponding with the gunshots and the car and the car tire is all really well done.
1: Yeah, I like that part a lot. It's great.
0: It's probably the most iconic image from the film.
1: Right, mm. I say. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, for sure.
0: It's sort of weird. It's like the sound gives the truth while the image is altered in the next scene because we find out that... The guy John Lithgow, the hitman, I, I guess whatever the hell he's supposed to be, comes in and he changes the narrative because he changes the tire and makes it appear to be a blowout. So I don't know if sa- if the the whole thing is that sound tells the truth while image lies, but then sound is also used to deceived people in this movie. So uh,
1: I think as far as De Palma got, maybe it's just that the government, the media lies sometimes. And like you said, there's no explicit political angle to this movie either uh i I don't know it's just about how sometimes conspiracies are correct i guess yeah that's that's... as as i can get i don't know
0: yeah there's no ambiguity to the conspiracy in this movie unlike in the first two films which i guess you could say like is what makes this film seem more shallow the thing is like the whole thing of like oh images and sound lying and stuff like that and they have the ability to deceive if, if that's like part of the theme of this movie that some people like to read i feel it's muddied by the fact that the conspiracy is actually true
1: yeah yeah I'd, uh, i don't I, I, yeah i don't think you can't you can't view it as a as a film about sound or media lying in terms of the the the, the, the sort of viewing kind of subject i mean he's not being deceived yeah you're right It's more about, you'd have to view it in terms of, like, you know, the media cover-ups, government, sort of shadowy government figures manipulating agendas to serve their own ends kind of thing. But but again, there's nothing specific about that, really. There's no policies mentioned. We don't know who these guys are.
0: We don't even know why they wanted to eliminate him other than that, like, they just wanted him out of the race, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's literally just the, the, the most simplistic version possible you see at the start, that there's big approval ratings for that guy He's going to run away with it, and then he dies, which again is good for a thriller. I mean, you don't want Too much extraneous bullshit. If we're just looking for a a sizzling thriller, which is what we get, I
0: would say like the most concrete themes this movie has is like yeah the relation between real violence and movie violence, as well as the idea of trying to shed your guilt in a sense. Right, those are the more concrete themes, which are a lot more archetypal and vague than. The themes of the last two films but you know as far as like this kind of movie goes I think they handle those ideas fairly fairly well like for this kind of film I mean it's not like a, a you know a Ber- Bergman-esque dive into <laughs> into guilt or stuff but it's not supposed to be right
1: yeah uh, for sure I uh, no, I
0: agree so when the, yeah after that they go to uh they meet up for um at that diner or whatever J- Jack and Sally do or. She reveals that she likes makeup, which kind of plays into the whole covering up and escapism theme. You could say her hiding away these things through visual perfection, but yeah, that's, that's pretty thin. I I agree, but you know,
1: it's just like a first date scene almost too. Yeah, it's like it's post meet cute or whatever. They're just it's it's very Hollywood. I don't know. It's it's cool. It's you just got to take this movie for what it is
0: i feel like we wouldn't be saying kind of things like that if we haven't paired it with the conversation and blow up
1: yeah but. i know but in a way it's almost kind of chill after working through the meat of those movies to just hang out with this movie it's just a hang out, hang outy movie you can just yeah. kind of chill with it it's just <laughs> a good time Yeah, it's just a good time. I don't know. I like this movie.
0: I love all these movies just for their own reasons. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in that scene where uh, we get his backstory where, you know, he had the wire linked to the cop, but he started sweating and uh, it started to burn him. And because of that, the criminals got a hold and they killed the guy. And so that's why he... Uh, he blames himself for this and why he quit working for the police and now is just working as a sound guy for these trashy B-movies. Not even B-movies, like Z-movies. And uh, I will say, like, that is something that could be a setup for, like, a really hacky Hollywood ending where, like, the character overcomes their trauma. But I would give credit. The film does subvert that notion, at least.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you when you put it that way, I think that's true. Uh, Maybe I, I was... Hoping it wouldn't be as quite as crass like we were saying, but you know, I def- I definitely agree. It's it's certainly not Hollywood it's certainly doing its own thing and i think it's after that we get a slasher movie
0: sequence where it's uh john lithgow stalking the the nancy allen look-alike through the mall he got some good shots there like the dissolve when he's looking at the photo of her and then it slowly dissolves further and further till we see the victim very nice effect uh but we expect no less from De Palma. and then
1: yeah and i and i like the the part where there she's like sort of stabbing her and then it's his shadow is projected on the wall w- w- with the red light, and it sort of pans to the street where the real one is walking.
0: I also like—there's another one, too, when uh, he picks up the ice pick— Uh, from the fish uh, which you think like this contract killer would have something like that he wouldn't just steal something like that but whatever it gives us a nice little ironic shot of the dead eyed fish and the soon-to-be dead woman
1: (laughs) he seems like such a a, a weird thrill seeker kind of guy too i guess so maybe it fits his character like i he he, i think he's having a conversation with the guy who hired him to where he he sort of disavows him at some point right he's basically doing this Because it's his job like he's he's sort of the archetypal psychopathy kind of thing he's just doing it because he enjoys doing it and because he was it's part of the contract. He's just yeah,
0: kind of a. It's a weird character because when he gets on, he says, he tells about the plan, but they're like, well, the plan was we weren't going to kill him. Like He he mentions he suggested that, but they rejected it. They just wanted to get photos of him with Nancy Allen in the car. And then he just shot out the tire and is now doing these things. And so it just seems like he's just a total loose cannon
1: mm-hmm, yeah. type.
0: Types. It allows it to, like,. Skate across the potential political implications and blame it all on just this one psycho guy.
1: <laughs> That's a good point too. I didn't think of that in terms of he was disav- sort of disavowing the political angle. Yeah, it's true. It's he's just some psychopath. He's he's a literal kind of psychopath. He can sort of mask, like he can sort of match people and mask his uh, personality. Uh, he he's sort of impulsive, a thrill seeker, you know, and obviously no guilt. He's 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 basically just a textbook psychopath, which, again, allows it to be totally apolitical.
0: Yeah, um, and uh, John Lithgow uh, plays it well. He uh, plays him very slimy and creepy when he has to be. He, and, uh, you know, he uh, also perfected a role like that when he was on Dexter more than 20 years later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he played the serial killer in the fourth season of Dexter.
1: Ah, I didn't know that. That's yeah cool. he
0: was he was also Lord Farquaad in Shrek so. really yes. oh, wow. He plays uh, good psychopaths well.
1: <laughs> I guess so. He has the three greatest psychopaths in fiction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but there's one thing that's weird is when, like, well, one, the the little wire that he has attached to his coat, you know, that's an obvious way for De Palma to obsessively replay that little sound effect, right, that De Palma loves doing so much. But when he gets that woman at the bus stop, it's sort of weird, like, how the hell did he get away with that in front of this <laughs> crowded group of people it's a little silly but like whatever i, I think like like you said like when you go into a de, uh, de palma movie you kind of have to let things like that slide
1: yeah it's it's, it's like he, it's like he probably thought it's like one of one of the slasher movies he likes like it's slasher movie logic He he's in the slasher movie universe where people can just sl- slasher villains can murder whoever they want with little consequence because yeah. they're 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 murderers
0: I find it ironic how, like, you know, in a movie that this has actually has a sense of humor and a bit of glee to its formalist proceedings, whereas a more conventional slasher films like Rob Zombie's uh, films, which took themselves way more seriously, yet their characters were even more stupid.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, this guy's actually pretty eerie in a way, you know, that that um his version of M- michael myers n- never really was
0: yeah it's just you know there's nobody goes up to john lithgow in this movie he's like oh hey man i'm gonna kick your ass and then he just kills them <laughs> like yeah. rob zombies michael myers no, that
1: would be kind of funny if i had the scene like with rednecks or something <laughs> or somebody picking a fight with him at the bar rob zombie needs yeah, to. The-
0: Rob Zombie needs to remake Blowout. We need to send this uh, out to be, him.
1: That'd be interesting, Rob Zombie to Palma. That'd be that'd be something.
0: What happens after that? That he kills the the girl, the first victim. And another thing I want to ask is that uh, he says that he's doing this to make because he's going to build up to killing Sally Nancy Allen, right? And he's just making it seem like it's just a bunch of sex killings in the area, mm-hmm. right? Is he mimicking a serial killer that's already known?
1: The, the Liberty Bell Strangler. Um, I, yeah, I can't tell if he made up like his presence makes up the Liberty Bell Strangler or if there's already a Liberty Bell Strangler. I can't remember. I think I think he's just called the Liberty Bell Strangler after he does the first two killings. And then, of course, at the end, um, the conspiracy is sort of uh, not found out because they just think he's a strangler and he dies.
0: Yeah, sure, and obviously there's nothing really to link him to the people he initially was working for.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's just another kind of joke because he's just taken as a serial killer,
0: which he somewhat is.
1: But uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, we just got a, I think we just got a lot of sort of. Um, Scenery shifting kind of thing. We get we get uh, Sally first meets her partner. She goes back to the apartment of her partner, and I think the two threads that get pursued there are: she goes back to the partner, and we learn more about her backstory, and then um, Jack meets with the the, the uh, news news guy, and then they're gonna set up him handing over the tape. There's yeah. some other stuff going on in there, like there's he tries to prove it to, to he tries to prove the existence of the conspiracy to other people, and there's some more like sort of table setting. But those are the two main. Uh, threads that uh, begin to coalesce as we sort of head towards Act 3. Yeah,
0: we get that uh, De Palma scene where he reconstructs uh, the images taken by uh, Dennis Franz's character, you know, her partner in uh, the newspaper. He makes his version of, like, the Zapruder film, basically, but which is kind of a big stretch like how many freaking uh stills and photographs did they print in this magazine he, he allows him to make a little movie out of it. it's 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 silly but like whatever you can go with a contrivance like that just to give De Palma his little visual uh set piece there right
1: oh yeah exactly
0: yeah and so I guess with Sally's backstory is essentially just yeah she's somebody who has like been used to blackmail people by getting them into bed and and such and uh you know he i think jack tries to kind of get it out of her that she's not as uh innocent as she makes herself out to be but yet she still acts in that same kind of air-headed way that she always does regardless even as she explains that you know she does it for the money and, and whatnot but yeah uh,
1: it's too it's a little too continuous of a performance <laughs> and uh his
0: it's very clear at this point that his whole investigation is basically just to clear his his own personal guilt and to become that hero that he once was, rather than, you know, just an actual search for this truth, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah, yeah.
0: I read uh, one review that said uh, he's attempting to reassert the symbolic phallus in his order, which is a uh, uh, Neo-Freudian bullshit, which we do not need to get into. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, that, that seems a little a little blah <laughs> well, yeah let's avoid that it, it, yeah he, he, you can see you can leave that sort of purposely muddly language aside and just say that he's trying to trying to make up for what he did in the past you know
0: also what do you think of uh the score in this movie by pino Donaggio?
1: it didn't super jump out to me besides the ending i guess i like the ending kind of sweet with that sort of, I like how that is continuous. It, like the music doesn't really stop until we get to the ending after the fireworks. Uh, but other than that, I didn't super notice it. I didn't notice it in a bad way.
0: Yeah, there's parts of it where it seems like it's discoy type music. It's like, where did this come from? Like when he's walking into the photo stop. But uh, that's like a minor nitpicky thing. But I agree with you at the end of the film that the music gets quite epic in a way that's kind of hard to not be kind of thrilled by. But yeah, but I think it's then pretty much here when Jack goes in and he finds that uh, John Lithgow has erased his tapes, right? And we get that 360 shot and then the God's Eye POV, both of which are really cool and impressive uh, formal techniques. You know, the 360 is just like him going in circles, constantly trying to figure out what the hell went wrong with his tapes. And then the uh, you know, the God's Eye POV is obviously these forces that are working against him, of yeah. course. Yeah, that's very nice. Uh, I guess sometimes I, I wonder, like before, uh, why doesn't he just play like the, you know, he we he, he had the film that he made, so why doesn't he just play that footage to like that cop? Well, that cop who doesn't like him, but I guess you can see why it's because like okay, he made this himself; it's not the raw mm. kind of thing, so maybe he just wouldn't. People wouldn't believe him, but that's never said in the movie. But, you know, you can at least form a justification for it.
1: Yeah, I guess if it, it's 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 defensible enough, I suppose. Defensible enough to keep the plot moving, I'd say.
0: I guess we get another scene where Nancy Allen goes back to her partner, Dennis Franz, whose performance is just so, like, what do you got to do with me? Kind of. <laughs> Hey, York. what do you
1: want? I'm an Italian guy from New York City. <laughs> yeah, yeah. not not much more than that, let's be honest
0: yeah that like you know he tries he gets all drunk out of nowhere and then starts kissing her and then she just knocks him on the head with the bottle and then he's never seen again
1: (laughs) yeah it's like a very good i guess kind of thriller beat but it's it's very bizarre and out of the blue (laughs) yeah
0: it's even weird though Use of the red and the shot like it's i guess it like signifies i don't know sin or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they're both in but
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really weird scene. It's almost like a potential rape scene, but even the way it's built up to it is kind of weak. I don't really, know, I don't even know why it needs to be there. To be, to be I, honest. I don't
1: know at all. Because again, yeah, he's just disposed of either dead or not in the picture anymore. Anyway, so who cares?
0: There is a funny bit though when uh, you know he's see not on the TV. They're like, "Oh, the blowup. It was just a blowout. It was an accident." He's like, "Bullshit!" And then it's like, "Oh, the Liberty." Day Strang Larry Bell Strangler strikes again, and he has no idea this is the same guy who's like fucking him over. It's kind of a little funny bit, but it's good stuff. And also, uh, they explain that uh, Sally doesn't watch the news because she finds it depressing. So when she hears John Lithgow called her, pretending to be the news reporter, reporter whose name is Frank Donahue, uh, why don't they just call him Phil Donahue? They could have had Phil in this movie, but I don't know. I know, I know, I know. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, so she believes that it's actually the real guy, which, you know, that is like you know, dumbest possible action tropes. But at least they give a justification of why this stupid thing happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's actually you. You gotta have you gotta have momentum, right? That's all he cares about, and that's that's all I care about at this point in this movie. It's just. A a brisk sense of momentum, which this movie rarely lets up on. It's after
0: that we get another slasher movie scene at Mm. the train
1: station. Um, again, like you said, a little less plausible uh, than the last one. Well, he
0: notices the prostitute who again kind of looks like Sally. She's giving the sailor guy a blowjob in the telephone booth. Because the guy like blows his load too quickly, he storms out and Lithka's like, Hey, uh, I got something for, for you to put in your mouth. Well, he doesn't say that, but he uh he gestures, you know, yeah uh, with his dot with his uh wad of cash. Uh yeah. and, you know she follows her. This is kind of crass too. I think he follows her to the bathroom and she has to brush her teeth. It's just kind of a crass little joke, and then he just hangs her with his wire from the other stall
1: yeah it's pretty gnarly i guess it's like a good kill in a slasher movie or whatever right and it's it has a nice sense of dread in in a vacuum again pretty unnecessary scene but uh, it's it's well crafted i suppose
0: i heard somewhere that this that that it was uh put in to maybe make it more racier for the box office but which didn't do much considering this movie bombed
1: but oh it did bomb Yeah, yeah that's interesting Maybe it was too like too dour. Maybe people heard about the ending and they or whatever. You know? That's actually why. Uh, oh really? Uh, well, this
0: this came out the same year as like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So, ah, yeah, yeah. A much more upbeat action movie. So yeah, something like this with its conspiracy thriller angle and the very kind of cynical ending. It probably wasn't what audiences were wanting that summer
1: hmm yeah, exactly.
0: What do you think of, like, even their relationship uh, Jack and Sally in this movie? It seems kind of... It doesn't seem like a real connection. It's more of the fact that they both have this sense of guilt and he just wants to protect her,
1: you know? Yeah, they they, they, they barely talk. They have no not a lot of chemistry, I would say, as actors even. Not many <laughs> important relationship scenes together. Then she dies. Not much there. It's <laughs> just... Am. its
0: all, it, it's a Hollywood movie relationship. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's interesting tarantino actually uh, really loves this movie Uh, he's a big fan of diploma but uh he apparently this is the reason why he wanted travolta for pulp fiction oddly enough
1: (laughs) wow so this movie saved his career yeah well uh,
0: after this movie i think travolta went into a phase where he made shit movies and then pulp fiction kind of saved him and then he just made shit movies again (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: he's had many ups and downs He, he, he lives a wild life
0: Also, you know, this whole thing is going on on the Liberty Day parade, right? And, uh, you know, Lithgow is called the Liberty Day Strangler. It's all a big ironic thing because, you know, they're being robbed of the very thing they're celebrating. This guy uh, took this candidate away from them, and he is strangling America of its liberty via Nancy Allen.
1: Damn, you're right. Yeah, she's the (laughs) martyr for America. Yeah, you're totally right. What it really is, though, is like a blockbuster, you know, cutaway you know, you're cutting between multiple lines of action, Uh it, nice little th- thrilling third act. It is good. I don't mean to be so dismissive. It's, it's just, it's just good. It's a good blockbuster third act. It's a good final confrontation.
0: I think I like how it's constantly cutting back to, you know, them talking as, uh, you know, he's trying to find out where they are, but I will say the whole thing where he crashes the car, uh, I find that's kind of takes away from the central suspense a little bit.
1: Mm, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's, seems a little convenient as well um maybe he's too separate from the action it, maybe they're, they're they're too disconnected i don't i don't know at, at least the stuff with her is kind of thrilling and also kind of funny when he's keeps trying to open up the wire when she and she keeps walking away from him i don't know <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah he, he she tries to open up the wire and then she's just like oh, this guy had this big knife. And he like, she like turns around with the knife that he has to withdraw his wire. I will say like, it it is on, I think it's partially, no, I don't think it's unintentionally funny what I'm saying when uh, he has the tape and he wraps it up and then throws it in the water. And she's like, Jack's gonna kill you. And then she realizes, oh, he's the one who's gonna kill her. But just the delivery of that line it's just so funny to me
1: yeah i know she, she got what you a, what a performance
0: you recognize her she's in robocop too she's a robocop's partner
1: I, yeah. I didn't recognize her yeah i didn't yeah. i didn't, I, didn't, I have to watch robocop again
0: yeah i will say though like the ending when uh the liberty day parade's going and uh you know he's carrying her up the stairs and Travolta's trying to uh search for them as the fireworks going off it, it's quite a spectacle of uh just sound and image, I would say, yeah, which is what De Palma does best.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah, especially like the fireworks and everything like that. It's there's a there's just nice movement, you know, him trying to move through the crowd. There's a lot of points of visual interest and in everything. uh Yeah, nice nice compositions. I, I don't know. It's 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 just very good. It's it's very solid in that sense. Not in, kind of unimpeachable in that sense, but you know,
0: yeah. Even the the slow motion, which I think is the first time he used that in the well not in his career i mean but in this movie it's the first use of slow motion when he's running up and you hear the chucking music going it's it's pretty thrilling uh, i would say just like i i would have a hard time like somebody were just watching that scene and not getting a little on the edge of their seat as they're watching it you know
1: yeah definitely yeah
0: and then he uh, he gets up, but he's too late, and uh, she's dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's killed her. But you know, his attempt to become a hero has only landed him even more guilt on his conscience.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so abrupt and so almost trolly. It's it's almost like a bad ending in a video game or something. Like that. <laughs> so bizarre. But I kind of, I in hindsight, I kind of appreciate it for its yeah. humor and. now
0: yeah but uh, the good thing for his film career (laughs) is that he caught he caught it all on tape so that scream uh that she gives that the scream that she's literally giving as she's dying is what is now can be used for the movie
1: (laughs) yeah now he's he's tasted the real thing so that's that's the end of his arc it's a a, a joke like it's it's just a meme it's just
0: it's such a sick cruel joke (laughs) (laughs) and yeah, <laughs> to to end the movie on <laughs> that it's part tragic tragedy but you can't help but laugh because it's just so cruel it's just been so it's just the big punchline to this joke that's been uh seated throughout this movie
1: yeah I know and then like even like i I usually feel like I have some patience for that stuff even even I it sort of rubbed me the wrong way and yeah I was re- just reading to con sort of as an addition to what you said it's right on the Wikipedia despite positive reviews the film. Floundered at the box office due to terrible word of mouth about its bleak ending. So it's specifically that through word of mouth which caused this to bomb, which I mean, I kind of guess, but I don't yeah, know.
0: yeah. And also, just on the low because it's, it's the idea of escape versus film the viol- versus you know, real violence is you know, he escapes his guilt by escaping into the world of schlock exploitation films. That have no connection to reality, but now the real violence has infiltrated the schlock B movie world. So Yeah, has, it's
1: sort of now he it's 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 sort of in him or whatever. He can't you know, he he has no escape from it or whatever.
0: Yeah, quite a sardonically brutal ending, I'll always. But i I can totally see like you said, how that would totally rub you the wrong way and it, it is sort of kind of glib and crust. But you know what? I, I, I kind of respect some of just having the balls to end. A movie yeah. In such in such a way like that.
1: Yeah, I, I get that for sure.
0: Yeah, so I think that concludes our thoughts on this whole trilogy of uh, of films. Yeah. So, so one of the more interesting trilogies, even though we, I, I'm one of the few people who probably would call it an actual trilogy, but that's what I'm doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at side by side for sure. Yeah, it was nice highlighting the different strengths and weaknesses of them. It was a great time. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I guess this is uh the Entry Zone Asylum Podcast. Uh signing off until another uh not sure date of when it will be back. So